A bright light filled the plane. The first shockwave hit us. We were 11 and a half miles slant range from the atomic explosion, but the whole airplane cracked and crinkled from the blast. We turned back to look at Hiroshima. The city was hidden by that awful cloud, mushrooming, terrible, and incredibly tall. That was Colonel Paul Tibbetts, the pilot of B-29 and Nola Gay, writing about the atomic bomb dropped on Hiroshima on August 6, 1945. It was an action that would kill an estimated 80,000 people immediately. Tens of thousands more would die later, though surprisingly, not the deadliest bombing campaign during the Pacific War. And it was an action that, just a couple years before, many would have thought impossible. Impossible because atomic power had only recently been explored by the Manhattan Project. Impossible because no war had ever gotten to this point before. The need for the total obliteration to bring about a decisive end. And impossible because the U.S., during the war's first couple years, was adamant about not becoming a part of it. Campaigning for re-election in 1940, President Franklin Roosevelt assured Americans that they would not be getting involved in anyone else's war. But then on December 7th, 1941, a day that would live in infamy, World War II would become America's war. On that day, Japan staged a surprise attack on Pearl Harbor, devastating the U.S. Pacific Fleet. For an hour and 15 minutes, Japanese firepower rained down upon American ships and servicemen, capsizing ships and sinking sailors to their doom. When Germany and Italy declared war in the United States, days later, America found itself in what was now truly a global war. While Japan's deadly assault on Pearl Harbor stunned Americans, in hindsight, the attack, or one like it, seemed inevitable. Its roots stretched back for decades. In many ways, it was a clash of enemies that was a long time in the making. As Japan industrialized during the late 19th century, after being forced by a threat of violence into opening its borders by the U.S., it sought to imitate Western countries, such as the United States, which had established colonies in Asia and the Pacific to secure natural resources and markets for their goods. Japan's new process of imperial expansion put it on a collision course with the U.S., particularly in relation to China. In 1931, Japan took its first step towards building a Japanese empire in Eastern Asia by invading Manchuria, a fertile, resource-rich province in northern China. But the United States refused to recognize the new regime or any other forced upon China. Still isolationist, the U.S. decided to stay out of it militarily. While U.S. politicians denounced Japanese expansion into China, U.S. companies continued to supply China with resources they needed for that same imperial expansion. But with the beginning of World War II in 1939, this hypocritical relationship would soon come to an end. As Hitler and the Nazis began conquering Europe, Germany's military successes unsettled the other European nations' claims on Asian colonies. Japan would now swoop in, ready to make their own empire. As Japan seized the opportunity to become the dominant imperial power in Asia, United States-Japan relations soured. We stopped selling them that sweet, sweet oil they desperately needed to run their war machine. As historian David M. Kennedy, Ph.D., explained, each nation stepped through a series of escalating moves that provoked but failed to restrain the other, all the while lifting the level of confrontation to ever riskier heights. And after December 8th, the two nations would be in an all-out war, fighting for control of the Pacific's many islands, natural resources, and, like in Europe, freedom to live under a democratic government. This week, we'll continue our World War II series with the war in the Pacific. How did U.S. and Japan inch towards war for almost a century? How was the war in the Pacific different from the war in Europe? And how were civilians, both Japanese and Japanese-Americans, caught in the clash? All this, right now, on another historical Big Time War edition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. (laughs) You're listening to Time Suck.
Happy Monday, Meat Sacks. Welcome to the Cult of the Curious. Learn a more important history this week. I'm Dan Cummins, the master sucker, the suck daddy. Guy who maybe talked too much uh, last week about a variety of nations using their uncle dicks to wear out Hitler's pussy. And you are listening to Time Suck. And uh, there will be no aggressive uh, typewriter sounds this week. Uh, yeah, we heard from many of you that the typewriter was, was way too loud. The couple part. And it was, and it was. And that was just a, a communication error here behind the scenes. You know, we're always tweaking to try and make things a little better, you know, but not mess up the recipe and end up with something you don't like. And, you know, sometimes we go too far in one direction. So, yeah, we realize also that was uh, that was too loud. So, apologies. And uh, today, almost no sound bits. Not because of that. Just didn't work out into what I want to do with this story. But, um, yeah, we, we were talking about the processes still and stuff like that shouldn't happen too often. Uh, if you want to see me live, uh, come to Louisville this weekend. I'll be bringing my typewriter. I'm going to work it into my show. <laughs> I'm going to have I'm going to have an old typewriter. I'm going to have a guy behind me, and he's going to type at uh, 30 decibels, and I'm going to speak at five. And we're going to see how the show goes. Uh, no, I'm going to be in uh, Louisville this weekend. Shows Friday and Saturday, November 25th, 26th at the Louisville Comedy Club. Also, I'll be in Portland, Oregon, Helium. Thursday, Friday, Saturday, December 1st to the 3rd, and finally Minneapolis to record a new album, December 9th and 10th at the Parkway Theater. Some tickets may show up last minute for those shows based on releasing uh, some more tickets if the cameras don't take up as much room as we're thinking. Uh, if you're hearing my voice, still sounds different. Yeah, this cold, man, is brutal. Brutal cold. Still uh, still sick from last week. All of us here in the office are sick. Uh, really looking forward to recording uh, the new stand-up material. I'll be better by then, I think. Uh, and then I got to figure out how to get my catalog, the back catalog of stand-up back up on Pandora and Spotify. Going to be working all spring probably trying to negotiate that legal fucking nightmare. What a mess. Big publishing rights battle between streaming platforms and publishing companies. And a lot of us comics like myself want nothing to do with this battle. Uh, I'm caught in the crossfire. Uh, this being a, a, another military-themed episode, good time to plug my friends at Black Rifle Coffee. They continue on with their mission of opening enough stores to employ at least 10,000 veterans. Fellow North Idahoan Evan Hafer and the crew marching steadily towards that goal. And the coffee this veteran-founded company makes is just the best. Uh, they just released 90 new products. Back on November 18th. If you're in the mood for pumpkin this time of year, you can try their Headless Horseman's Roast flavored with pumpkin spice. Muy delicioso. I uh, love those guys. They continue to do a lot of good work for veterans, law enforcement, first responders, and they make, yeah, just great shit. And also, I, I was hanging out with one of them uh, in uh, Austin recently, uh, Jared Taylor, JT, one of the co-hosts of the Drinking Bros podcast with Ross Patterson, Dan Halloway. Dan was, uh, he, was uh, he was in D.C., but we had, I had fun with uh, JT and Ross and, uh, and I also had phone lines down there with the unsubscribe podcast, Eli Double Tap, AKA, AKA Eli Cuevas and Cody Garrett, AKA the donut operator. So fun. And I uh, got to hang with Heather Lynn and Savannah and some of the, some of the crew there. And man, we got real fucking wild on the unsubscribe podcast. Talked about a, a real ridiculous superhero gang. Got a nice and weird. Like I like it. Uh, and then finally reminder that in honor of November, continuing uh, veterans day, we donated to a veteran cause again this year. Donated $15,220 to United Heroes League, uh, who provides free sports equipment, game tickets, cash grants, skill development camps, and special experiences to military families across the U.S. and Canada. Uh, the United Heroes League keeps military kids active and healthy through sports while their parents are out serving their countries. So to find out more, you can go to United Hero Heroes League, unitedheroesleague.org. And donated $1,692 to the upcoming scholarship fund. And now, on to the conclusion of our two-part series on Hitler's pussy. No, on more than that, on World War II. In this episode, we'll move on to the Pacific theater of the war. Uh, though happening simultaneously with the war in Europe, the war in the Pacific would be much different. Different styles of fighting, different kind of enemy, 
different picture of the war as a whole. There's a lot to go through here since we haven't covered Japan's rise in other episodes like we have with Hitler's. With the limited time we'll be devoting to this, we'll first take a look at how the Pacific War was different than the European War before moving on to a brief history of Japan's road to becoming an imperial empire. Then we'll back up a little bit, move over to the timeline, look at uh, how the U.S.'s relationship with Japan changed over almost a century until both nations were in an all-out war, how it soured, resentments built up. So here we fucking go. Diving back in from a point of view we haven't really covered yet on this war. We spent a lot of time in the suck first, talking about Hitler and the war in Europe. Maybe not about uh, allied Uncle Dick's wearing out Hitler's pussy until last week, but a lot of time talking about uh, adjacent things to to World War II, parts of World War II in Europe. But we never really covered the rise of Imperial Japan before. Not here. And why the U.S. found themselves fighting a war in two massively different arenas, facing off uh, against two massively different enemies. How different were they? General Joseph Layton Collins, a.k.a. Lightning Joe, was one of the few generals to fight in both the Pacific and the European theaters in World War II. And he would say this about the differences in fighting the Germans versus fighting the Japanese. They were radically different. The German was far more skilled than the Japanese. Most of the Japanese that we fought were not skilled men, not skilled leaders. The Germans had a professional army. The Japanese army was very much like ours in a sense. They had a small core of officers who were professionals, but the bulk of their people were not professionals in the sense of knowing their business and so on. They didn't have the equipment that we had. They didn't know how to handle combined arms, the artillery, and the support of the infantry to the same extent we did. They were gallant soldiers, though. They fought to the end, and you had to knock them off that. There was, that was all there was to it, and we had to do that right on Guadalcanal. The Japanese were very gallant men. They fought very, very hard, but they were not nearly as skillful as the Germans, but the Germans didn't have the tenacity of the Japanese. Despite the enemy not being as skilled in combat, the German had dedicated efforts towards building their war machine like no one else had prior to World War II. Uh, many historians uh, think that the Pacific War, conducted on remote islands against an enemy especially dedicated to fighting to the death, was probably the tougher fight. It was common for the Japanese to truly fight to the death. I mean, death before dishonor, right? Think about all the kamikaze fighters whose job it was to fly one and only one mission, to crash their plane into an enemy target, to gladly sacrifice themselves to kill the enemy. Not every enemy is that dedicated to the cause. This is part of the reason that some have argued that the Pacific War was the more brutal theater of World War II. The casualties sustained in the Pacific War uh, number between 30 and 36 million. About 50% of the war is probably, uh, you know, overall total casualties. I mean, the numbers, again, vary from source to source, which actually says less about the record-keeping abilities of everyone involved with World War II, and, and I think more about how there was just so much fucking death occurring in such a short time frame that it was hard to keep track of it all. The fighting in the Pacific theater was wrought with the same hatred, nationalism, racism, war criminality that raged across Europe, sometimes on the part of both the Japanese and the U.S. And, uh, you know, other allies fighting with the U.S. was primarily the U.S., but also, you know, Australia and Britain and others. Uh, the brutality of the Pacific War was also equally astonishing, beginning with the rape of Nanking, what some consider to be the true beginning of World War II back in 1937. The tone for the conflict was set. Carnage, brutality, nasty surprises, Starting around December 13th, 1937, and continuing for more than six weeks, Nanking suffered as few other cities in history have suffered since the Mongols brutalized various kingdoms in their bloody march west. Conquering Japanese uh, looked at the population of Nanking and up to 90,000 POWs they'd captured as an opportunity to train their soldiers in brutality. They marched Chinese soldiers into designated killing fields. The Japanese officers enlisted men shot, stabbed, beheaded the Chinese in an attempt to condition 
their men out of having any fucking empathy, any pity towards fallen enemies. With their supply of P- when, when the supply of POWs ran thin, the Japanese turned onto the city's 600,000 civilians, whom the retreating Chinese nationalists had prevented from fleeing. In the orgy of literal rape and murder that followed, carnage that saw babies run through with bayonets and pregnant women sliced open with swords, as many as 300,000 people may have died. And they died fucking brutally, literally raped to death in some cases, raped or forced to watch loved ones be raped, children killed in front of parents, civilians intentionally buried alive while crowds of soldiers watched and laughed, wanton torture. The most depravity you can literally imagine, true hell on earth. Photos available online capture some of the surreal horror. Smiling Japanese soldiers holding up severed Chinese heads, grinning Japanese soldiers preparing to behead Chinese children or forcing themselves on Chinese women bound to poles or immobilized in other ways. Dead babies strewn across city steps, nude women's bodies, women bayoneted after being gang raped and sexually brutalized with various foreign objects. I mean, it's unfucking real the levels of depravity. Check out with John Rabe, a German businessman in Nanking who helped establish a safety zone that helped spare 250,000 civilian lives there, wrote, Two Japanese soldiers have climbed over the garden wall and are about to break into our house. When I appear, they give the excuse that they saw two Chinese soldiers climb over the wall. When I show them my party badge, they return the same way. In one of the houses, in the narrow street behind my garden wall, a woman was raped and then wounded in the neck with a bayonet. I managed to get an ambulance so we can take her to Kulo Hospital. Last night, up to a thousand women and girls are said to have been raped. About a hundred girls at Ginling College alone. You hear nothing but rape. If husbands or brothers intervene, they're shot. What you hear and see on all sides is the brutality and bestiality of the Japanese soldiers. And John Rabe was a member of the Nazi party. That's the fucking party badge you're talking about. He wrote, he actually wrote to Hitler after seeing all this, asking him to try and persuade the Japanese to be less fucking brutal. That's a, that's a lot. Dude asking Hitler to tell the Japanese to cool it down. Fucking easy on the rape. Robert Wilson, an American surgeon president of the massacre, wrote the following uh, letter to his family back home. The slaughter of civilians is appalling. I could go on for pages telling of cases of rape and brutality almost beyond belief. Two bayoneted corpses are the only survivors of seven street cleaners who were sitting in their headquarters when Japanese soldiers came in without warning or reason and killed five of their number and wounded the two that found their way to the hospital. Let me recount some instances occurring in the last two days. Last night, the house of one of the Chinese staff members of the university was broken into and two of the women, his relatives, were raped. Two girls, about 16, were raped to death in one of the refugee camps. In the university middle school, where there are 8,000 people, the Japanese came in 10 times last night over the wall, stole food, clothing, and raped until they were satisfied. They bayoneted one little boy of eight who had five bayonet wounds, including one that penetrated his stomach, a portion of his omentum outside the abdomen. I think he will live. Russian serial killer Andrei Chikatilo wrote the following to his family back home. I having best time in that king, heaven on earth. It's so many ladies to wrestle. Everyone wrestle here. It's one big fun wrestlemania. I never come home. And of course he wasn't there. But that sick son of a bitch would have fucking loved it. It was just an orgy of just depravity. The Japanese hadn't suddenly turned brutal either once they made it to Nanking. They were brutal whenever they encountered the Chinese or really any enemies. They were just fucking brutal, period. In 1937, two Japanese newspapers covered a contest between two Japanese officers, Toshiaki Mukai and Suyoshi Noda of the Japanese 16th Division. These men were described as vying to be the first to kill 100 people with only a sword before the capture of Nanking. On the way to Nanking, uh, Mukai had killed 89 people 
right? So, uh, with a sword. Uh, while Noda killed 78. The contest continued because neither had killed 100. Both officers supposedly surpassed their goal during the heat of the battle, making it impossible to determine which officer had actually won the contest. And these are fucking newspapers co- like covering this. Like it's a sporting event. Um, therefore, according to journalists, they decided to begin another contest to kill 150 people. So clearly like the, the public not outraged by this. They're reading this newspaper like, yeah, yay, big numbers. Overall, beginning in 1937 through the end of World War II, China would suffer up to 20 million civilian deaths. 20 fucking million. Meanwhile, Japan's uh, biological and chemical warfare research, uh, you know, and uh, unit, unit 731, was committing its own medical experimentation horrors. We covered them in their own suck. Founded in 1931 as a normal army medical unit, by 1935, the team was stockpiling supplies of bubonic plague, anthrax, cholera, and forms that were distressingly easy to deploy against civilians. Just a single attack in Manchuria, the Japanese dropped aerial bombs filled with sawdust and plague-infected fleas over population centers. This was partly a terror bombing against a territory the Japanese already controlled to further beat the population into submission and partly just, you know, just kind of fucking around. Just uh, seeing how well the weapon worked. Might as well test on some real people. When the bomb uh, casing split open in the air, the fleas fell unharmed to the ground, began biting people, infecting their blood with a strain of plague that had been bred for greater violence uh, by being passed through multiple generations of Chinese and Korean prisoners. They'd used other human guinea pigs to make this thing stronger. Pouring over population figures before and after the war, the Chinese government now estimates this one attack may have killed around 600,000 people. Jesus. Uh, Unit 731's other activities may have killed another half a million or so innocent people before the end of the war. Just like the Nazis we covered last week, these motherfuckers waged war with seemingly zero thought towards any sort of morality. It was win at any costs. Do whatever you wish to enemy civilians. If raping the locals boosts uh, soldiers' morale, well, let the raping begin. If killing hundreds of thousands of enemy civilians helps you develop a biological weapon that can help you gain further imperial colonial conquests going forward, we'll drop that fucking plague because fuck them all. The astonishing brutality of the Japanese war machine, just like the equally devastating brutality of the Nazis, would not draw the Americans into military action. Only a direct attack would do that. And that occurred on December 7th, 1941, the day the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. This attack was so unexpected, one soldier, as the bombs began to drop on Pearl Harbor, remarked to a friend, this is the best goddamn drill the Air Force has ever put on. The Army Air Force. But of course, it wasn't a drill. Within minutes, an 800-pound bomb smashed through the USS Arizona and sent it underwater with more than 1,000 men trapped inside. Then another set of bombs took down the USS Oklahoma with 400 sailors aboard. The entire attack was over in less than two hours, and by the time it was done, every single battleship in in Pearl Harbor, if not sunk outright, had sustained serious damage. The attack killed 2,403 U.S. personnel, including 68 civilians. Meanwhile, Japan was busy attacking other bases, too. American bases in Guam, Wake Island, and the Philippines. The Japanese also attacked the British colonies of uh, colonies of Malaya, Singapore, and Hong Kong. They'd invade Thailand, too, in their relentless quest for Asian supremacy. But things got nasty on both the part of, the, of Japan and the U.S. as the Pacific War heated up. Following the attack on Pearl Harbor, racial hatred for the Japanese, even if they were American citizens, burgeoned across the country. Time Magazine reported, and I quote, why the yellow bastards and the lyrics, we're going to find a fellow who was yellow and beat him red, white, and blue were commonly crooned around the country. My God, mindless Japanese American hate spread across the nation. Reminds me of my sister who's a teacher in Boise telling me about white Idaho kids taunting Hispanic kids just a couple years ago on the playground with chants of build that wall. 
telling them to go back to their country. It's so easy to be better than that. And I say that as a former ignorant, racist, homophobic, white Idaho kid. I changed. Got to push yourself out of the wrong echo chambers. Listen to shit like this, maybe you could start. Thinking everyone of a certain skin color or culture thinks the exact same way. That is the height of lazy thinking. We do it so much, we humans. Uh, Within two months, Japanese Americans were rounded up, forced into internment camps. Within weeks, some 120,000 people of Japanese ancestry were locked up purely for their heritage. Many suffered in these camps. Some even died in American soldiers' hands. American soldiers who would uh, then be let off the hook by a government at war. American soldiers would also suffer. As the hundreds of thousands of American men who had just enlisted were about to learn, fighting in the Pacific was going to be more brutal than what most of them would see in Europe. Because the Japanese didn't fight by the same rules even as as, as the Nazis. Yes, the Nazis committed war crimes for sure. Obviously, they killed POWs. But they also didn't kill a lot of POWs. Right, the Japanese didn't kill all of them either, but they were more inclined to, more inclined to mistreat them. They they had a, uh, the Germans had signed the Geneva, or I'm sorry, the Japanese had signed the Geneva Convention in 1929, but failed to ratify, and as such, had no incentive to treat a prisoner of war, as the agreement stipulated. Their culture at the time was ruled by a state-controlled version of Shinto. They believed that a soldier should die honorably, and surrendering was a complete disgrace, a disgrace that meant that their prisoners could be dealt with any way they wanted. By virtue of surrendering, I mean, these guys were dishonorable men. That's how they saw them. Pussies, cowards who forfeited any right to be treated with any sort of dignity, right? Fuck them. The Japanese told their prisoners of war outright. They saw no value in their lives. Captain Yoshio uh, Suniyoski told a group of recently captured American captives, we do not consider you to be prisoners of war. You are members of an inferior race and we will treat you as we see fit. Whether you live or die is of no concern to us. Imagine being some scared 19-year-old kid just captured, hearing that shit. Uh, He was echoing an order that had come straight from Tokyo. The War Ministry of Japan had explicitly told its men it is the aim not to allow the escape of a single one, to annihilate them all, and to not leave any traces. One group of soldiers who crash-landed onto uh, Kyushu Island in 1945 were carried off by a group of Japanese soldiers who uh, told them they would treat their injuries. Instead, they brought them to a facility for medical experimentation. One had seawater injected into his bloodstream to see how it would affect him. You know, just curious, just dicking around. Hey, does that hurt like fuck? Oh, cool. We thought it would. We just wanted to be sure. Another had his lungs surgically removed so that the doctors could watch how that would affect his respiratory system. Hey, is it, uh, is it harder to breathe with one less lung? Okay, cool. Yeah, no, we thought it would be. We just, just wanted to be sure. Uh, thanks, buddy. Another died when a doctor drilled into his brain to see if it would cure his epilepsy. Or maybe there was no hope of a cure going into that one. An eyewitness to these uh, deaths Japanese doctor Toshio Tono said the experiments had absolutely no medical merit. They were being used to inflict as cruel a death as possible on the prisoners. Instead, uh, many more were simply subjected to the cruelest deaths possible without any attempt to disguise torture as science. Right? Sorry, not not instead. Indeed. Uh, Some prisoners reported being tied to a stake under a blazing summer sun with a glass of water just left right out of their reach. Japanese guards would watch and laugh as they struggled to get it. Right? This torture was entertainment. And these guys went back home after the war and had families and worked at uh, companies, ran businesses. Ah, uh, fun. Other prisoners were force-fed water, then tied to the ground while guards literally jumped on their stomachs to see how long it would take them to piss themselves. Again, just for funsies. Still more reported uh, that the guards would start each day by naming 10 men who would be forced to go out and dig their own graves. Lots of fun. In the Pacific War, it was not uncommon for Allied soldiers to stumble upon scenes straight out of a fucking horror film. 
Uh, we talked a bit about that a few weeks ago in our Cannibal Cop episode, how numerous Japanese soldiers literally feasted upon their enemies. Australian Corporal Bill Hedges described finding a group of Japanese soldiers in New Guinea, uh, cannibalizing the flesh of his brothers in arms. He said the Japanese had cannibalized our wounded and dead soldiers. We found them with meat stripped off their legs and half-cooked meat in the Japanese dishes. I was heartily disgusted and disappointed to see my good friend lying there with the flesh stripped off his arms and legs, his uniform torn off of him. Um, before I continue, something, something very funny to me about his word choice here uh, of disappointed. <laughs> if you disappoint, I mean, obviously this is an almost unimaginably horrific act to see. I'm so traumatic. I'm sure the witnessing this, you know, fucked uh, Corporal Bill Hedges up. I guess he felt more than disappointed. Like he was a, like a, a bummed out dad. Like he was the father of these Japanese soldiers. And he just caught him sneaking back into the house after going to a party or something. Just guys. Oh no. What have you done? You just ate my good friend. You fucking ate him. This is, uh, this is really disappointing. I just, I expected so much more out of you. I'm not mad. I'm not mad. I'm just disappointed. Go to your rooms and think about what you've done. Uh, Hedges spoke of how this wasn't the desperate act of starving men. The Japanese soldiers, Hedges said, uh, had plenty of rice and cans of food to eat. They just, uh, they want to do this. It was an act of hatred in his eyes. Wasn't even an isolated event, nor was this the act of a lone crazed crew. Japanese soldiers have been uncovered explicitly giving their men permission to eat their dead. One note signed by Major General Tachibana read, Order regarding eating the flesh of American flyers. One, the battalion wants to eat the flesh of the American aviator, Lieutenant Hall. Two, First Lieutenant Ken Murr uh, will see to the rationing of this flesh. Three, Cadet Sakabi will attend the execution and have the liver and gallbladder removed. Anyone else think it's weird that they fucking named Lieutenant Hall specifically? Makes, it makes me think they had a variety of guys. And just wanted to eat him the most. Why? Did he give him a bunch of shit? Was he just a delicious looking dude? Uh, another Japanese officer, Colonel uh, Masanobo uh, Suji, even berated his men if they failed to join him in eating the flesh of the dead. Suji said, the more we eat, the brighter will burn the fire of our hatred for the enemy. What the fuck? Nazis get uh, all the evil villain hype, but these Imperial Japanese soldiers, equally monstrous, scarier in some ways. Uh, however, to be fair, some American soldiers fighting the Japanese were also brutal, right? One U.S. Marine colonel ordered his men to take no prisoners. You will kill every yellow son of a bitch, and that's that. So that's, you know, maybe not the, the best thing. Uh, according to the, uh, across, excuse me, across the Pacific War, American soldiers would skin the bodies of the dead Japanese, boil their bones clean, and keep them as souvenirs. Fairly macabre. At least one soldier sent his lover a Japanese soldier's polished skull as a gift. Well, another sent President Roosevelt himself, a letter opener made from a dead soldier's arm bone. And Roosevelt reportedly said, looking over the severed body part of this Japanese soldier, this is the sort of gift I like to get. Now, there's a lot of fucked up stuff going on. Practices like these are so commonplace that when famed pilot Charles Lindbergh, who wasn't allowed to enlist but did fly bombing missions as a civilian, passed through customs in Hawaii on his way home from the Pacific, the customs agent asked if he was carrying any bones. When Lindbergh expressed shock at that question, the agent explained that the smuggling of Japanese bones had become so common that that was now a routine question. Elsewhere in his wartime journals, Lindbergh noted that the Marines explained to him that it was common practice to remove ears, noses, and the like from Japanese corpses, and that killing Japanese stragglers for that purpose was, quote, a sort of hobby. So that's beyond fucked up. Somebody that should be a, a POW or just like, nah, I just, just want to kill them so I can get their notes. Uh, Lindbergh would write in his journals, as far back as one can go in history, these atrocities have been going on. 
not only in Germany with his duck house and its uh, Buchenwalds and its Camp Doras, but in Russia and the Pacific and the riotings and lynchings at home and the less publicized uprisings in Central and South America, the cruelties in China, a few years ago in Spain, the pogroms of the past, the burning of the witches in New England, tearing people apart on the English racks, burnings at the stake for the benefit of Christ and God. I look down at the pit of ashes. This, I realize, is not a thing confined to any nation to, or to any people. What the German has done to the Jew in Europe, we are doing to the Japanese in the Pacific. Fucking meat sacks, man. Awesome uh, fucking quote there from Lindbergh too, man. Very insightful. Yes, this is not unique to the Japanese. This is not unique to the Germans. This is what uh, humans have done to each other throughout our history, right? We're so malleable. Our overall morality, so adaptable to our surroundings and circumstances for better or for worse. We're capable of such nobility, of so much love and honor and sacrifice, and unfortunately, equally capable of acting in ways more savage than any other creature on earth, of treating fellow humans far worse than any predator would, any other predator besides us, defiling, torturing, sexual sadism, the most demented and ruthless kinds, and then able to head home from war or wherever this occurred and reacclimate to whatever the civil norms happen to be. Our adaptability, both inspiring and absolutely fucking terrifying. The capability to behave in an evil manner is not some potential side effect of being a Nazi or a soldier of uh, Imperial Japan's army. It's a potential side effect of just being human. I always got to keep an eye on that. Fighting in the Pacific was brutal for the Americans and any allies fighting with them. As a soldier, you were facing an enemy who would gladly kill himself if it meant taking you out with him. Not even the Nazis had those kamikaze pilots. If you were captured by the Japanese, you faced any number of horrific tortures. For locals, there was a real good chance they were going to uh, rape the women from men. Now they might literally fucking eat you after torturing and killing you. Location of the battles offered its own unique challenges as well. While soldiers in Europe had to deal with harsh winters and the threat of frostbite and of actually freezing to death in some cases, soldiers in the Pacific were on wet, hot islands riddled with tropical diseases and dangerous animals where they could die just as easily from nature as from an enemy. Almost 800 Japanese died in 1945 while retreating from uh, Ramri Island just along the coast of Burma rather than surrendering to the British. They fucked up, chose the wrong way to exit. They fled into the swamp and many of them were literally eaten alive by crocodiles. Soon after entering a slimy mud hole, Japanese soldiers began to succumb to disease, dehydration and starvation. Mosquitoes, spiders, venomous snakes and scorpions hid in the thick forest, picked off some of the troops one by one. Imagine this shit fleeing soldiers trying to kill you and you end up in a fucking swamp full of dirty ass water riddled with bacteria and venomous snakes and scorpions. Actually venomous enough to kill you. You're getting bit and stung and sick. You're out of rations. You're starving. You keep wading further and further into the dark swamp day after day. And then crocodiles start eating you. Right? Just picking off the soldiers around you. You just pray that you're not the next one. Crocodiles appeared when the Japanese got deeper into the swamp. Saltwater crocodiles, nocturnal hunters who excel at taking prey in the dark. The most prominent firsthand retelling of what happened comes from naturalist Bruce Stanley Wright, who participated in the Battle of Ramry Island and gave this written account. The night of February 19th, 1945 was the most horrible that any member of the ML motor launch crews have ever experienced. The crocodiles, alerted by the din of warfare and smell of blood, gathered among the mangroves, lying with their eyes above the water, watchfully alert for their next meal. With the ebb of the tide, the crocodiles moved in on the dead, wounded, and uninjured men who had become mired in the mud. The scattered rifle shots in the pitch-black swamp punctured by the screams of the wounded men crushed in the jaws of huge reptiles and then blurred, worrying sound of spinning crocodiles made a cacophony of hell that has rarely been duplicated on Earth. At dawn, the vultures arrived to clean up what the crocodiles had left. Fucking incredibly brutal. 
And all these examples of the Pacific War's brutality have nothing on the war's end, the dropping of the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which we covered more uh, in our, you know, more thoroughly in our suck on the Manhattan Project. So how do we get here? How the fuck did the fighting get so savage? And how did the relationship between Japan and the U.S. become so fucked up to lead to all this? Uh, we're going to go over that today, charting the beginning of Japan's relationship to the U.S. in the 19th century and its increasing prominence as a world superpower before it turned to imperialism, nationalism, and uh, expansion at all costs. We'll also cover the rise of anti-Japanese and anti-Asian sentiments in the U.S. that would eventually lead to the creation of internment camps for Japanese Americans, many of whom had been born in the U.S. and had no allegiance to Japan. First, I'll present a brief overview of the road to war, understanding how a once small, isolated Japan would become such a formidable enemy on the international scale before diving into today's time-suck timeline. So unless you happen to be a World War II scholar, it's likely that the mention of Japan conjures up a couple of things for you, right? Maybe anime. Maybe so much super fucking cool electronic tech. Love my Sony flat screen t- TV, right? PS5. Wish I had more time to spend with both. Uh, maybe you think of the futuristic city of Tokyo or the badass history, right? Of the samurais. All these things. So much more like Japan's delicious cuisine. Hello, sushi. Fuck yeah, bro. Have given Japan a preeminent cultural position globally. I don't know anyone who doesn't know and love something Japanese, right? Social cachet wise. Japan has been cool as fuck for a long time now. I had a foreign exchange student roommate from Japan my freshman year in college and Sugi and his friends seemed just the coolest to me. It was like they were from the future. And not going to lie, the Japanese girls that they hung out with, holy shit, were they hot. Hello, Safina. I probably would have moved to Japan with them had they wanted me to, which they did not. But a century and a half ago, Japan uh, was not seen as cool by much of the world. It was a very different place. In the mid-19th century, Japan was a militarily weak country, primarily agricultural, had very little technological development. Instead of a centralized government, it was controlled by hundreds of semi-independent feudal lords. The Western powers, Europe and the United States, would soon capitalize on Japan's relative weakness to force Japan to sign treaties that limited its control over its own foreign trade. The U.S. and Japan signed their first true commercial treaty, sometime, uh, or sometimes called the Harris Treaty, in 1858. It provided for the opening of five ports to U.S. trade in addition to those opened in 1854 as a result of the Treaty of Kanagawa, also exempted U.S. citizens living in the ports from jurisdiction of Japanese law, guaranteed them religious freedom, and arranged for diplomatic representation and a tariff agreement between the U.S. and Japan. And this all began with a threat of force. In 1853, U.S. President Millard Fillmore sent a fleet of warships to Japan to force the Japanese to open up trade to America. And did you forget that some other fucker named Millard was once our president? Me too. Uh, He didn't win an election. He took over when Zachary Taylor died in office of some kind of stomach ailment. Uh, Millard was succeeded by Franklin Pierce. And I honestly forgot that all three of those dudes had once been president. For me in the 19th century, there was Abraham Lincoln, Ulysses Grant, Thomas Jefferson, Andrew Jackson, John Quincy Adams, and fucking some other dudes. And I only even remember John Quincy Adams because he almost signed off on an expedition to look for mole people hiding in the center of the earth. Anyway, Japanese and U.S. relations. After centuries of Japanese isolationism were kicked off by the U.S. essentially putting a fucking gun to the head of the Japanese leadership and telling them they can do trade with us the way we wanted to, or they could get their brains blown out. And that is a great way to build later resentment. Great way to uh, later want to enact some revenge. The European powers soon followed the U.S.'s example, drew up their own treaties with Japan, all very favorable treaties towards everyone but Japan. Keep stoking those fuck the West fires. Although Japan opened its ports to modern trade very reluctantly, once it did, it took advantage of the new access to modern technological developments. Japan's opening to the West enabled it to begin to modernize its military, 
and to rise quickly to the position of the most formidable Asian power in the Pacific. Japanese national pride might be historically unmatched. That helped too. Proud, fierce people, right? Way the samurai and all that. And now they're interacting with the world around them for the first time after centuries of self-imposed isolationism. Japan's culture became somewhat westernized with men and women embracing new kinds of fashion, entertainment, and goods. At the same time, the process by which the U.S. and the Western powers forced Japan into modern commercial intercourse, along with other internal factors, weakening, uh, weakened the position of the ruling Tokugawa shogunate. A group of Japanese nationalists protested the insults against their national sovereignty and led the forces which overthrew the Tokugawa regime, reinstalling the Meiji emperor in 1868. After 1868, the new leaders of the Meiji Japan worked hard to improve their country's status in the world and to abolish the unequal treaties and racial discrimination imposed upon them by European and U.S. powers. They watched nervously as much of Southeast Asia fell under French colonial rule. They watched Russia move rapidly into Manchuria and Northeast China. The U.S. pushed westward from California to Hawaii. Britain fought two wars to advance its interests in China. Japan wondered what strategies could it use to preserve its own independence. What models of international behavior should it follow? Faced with the very real possibility of a takeover by Russian or Western forces, Japan moved quickly to create its own colonial state by first extending control over nearby islands, which did not identify as Japanese. In 1869, Izo, the lands to the north of the Japanese island of Honshu, was incorporated into the new state of uh, Hokkaido, the North Seas District. I didn't realize that prior to 1869, what is now Japan's second largest island was not Japanese. Although there were Japanese settlers who ruled the southern tip of the island since the 16th century, uh, Hokkaido was considered foreign territory that was inhabited by the indigenous people of the island known as the Ainu people. These people, since 1869, have almost completely been assimilated into Japanese culture. Fewer than a hundred are estimated to still be native speakers of the Ainu language today. Less than 300 thought to be racially pure Ainu. Much like how the U.S. government forced the destruction and assimilation of various native tribes, the Japanese conquerors did the same exact thing to the Ainu people. By 1895, the Japanese army and navy had purchased high-quality European-style weapons and reorganized their military according to European structures. Meanwhile, the Qing dynasty government in China and the Joseon government in Korea had not grown more sophisticated militarily. Comparatively, they were weak, and Japan exploited their weakness. Claiming to be aiding a pro-Japanese group in Korea's Joseon court, uh, Japan sent troops to attack both Korea's National Army and the Chinese Qing troops that came to their aid. Japan's victory over both Korea and Chinese forces was rapid and total on both land and sea, demonstrating the effectiveness of Euro-American military technology in Japanese hands. Through a peace treaty, Japan took the island of Taiwan and the Laodong Peninsula as colonies, as well as a huge sum of money. Japan also ended Qing power in Korea. And Japan's victory would threaten another rapidly expanding empire, Tsarist Russia, with help from Germany and France, Russia pressured Japan to return Laodong to China in exchange for cash. And when Japan took them up on this offer, much of the Japanese public, delighted by Japan's easy victory, now rioted against the government for caving into foreign demands. Japan's nationalistic pride was growing stronger. A cultural feeling of racial superiority was increasing. And the Japanese public was not interested in bending the knee in any way to any foreigner, all of whom were seen as racially inferior. Just like many Germans under Hitler, Right, believe themselves to be part of the master race. Imperial Japan believed the Japanese to be racially superior to all others. And they came to believe it was their destiny to rule all of Asia and the South Pacific. In Japanese government documents from the 1940s, recovered after the war, Imperial Japan believed that just as a family has harmony and reciprocity, but with a clear-cut hierarchy, the Japanese as a purportedly racially superior people 
were destined to rule, rule Asia eternally and become the supreme dominant leader of all humanity and ruler of the world. Yikes. We're number one. We're number one. Right? Internationally, the classic battle cry of the deluded nationalist. Japan similar to the Nazis in so many ways. A uh, decade after Japan returned Laodong to China, they enacted revenge against Russia. After careful planning an alliance with England in 1902 and a very costly military buildup, uh, Japan went to war with Russia in 1904, effectively eliminating the Russian fleet in southern Laodong in the initial battle. We've mentioned the Russo-Japanese War of 1904 and 1905 and a few Russia-related sucks. This war accelerated the fall of the Russian monarchy and helped lead to the Bolshevik Revolution that ushered in communism. Although Japan won the war with Russia, they were not given cash payments from their enemy as they'd expected in the ensuing peace treaty, a treaty negotiated by Theodore Roosevelt, right, the American president. Again, the Japanese public felt that Japan had not received its due and rioting broke out in major cities. More anti-American sentiment has now built up. America strong-armed Japan into opening up their land to Westerners, and now America helped negotiate a bullshit treaty with Russia. A lot of Japanese citizens feeling a whole lot of fuck Uncle Sam. Japan's militarism really ramps up now. They're done negotiating with the West. They'll annex North, or annex, not North, uh, just Korea in 1910, attempting the same kind of cultural erasing with the Koreans that they pulled off with the Ainu people. Schools and universities forbade speaking Korean now, emphasized manual labor and loyalty to the emperor. Ethnic Koreans became a servant class of sorts to the Japanese, and Koreans were exploited as second-class citizens. Speaking Japanese became expected in public places, and an edict to make films in Japanese soon followed. It became a crime to teach history from non-approved texts. Korean history archives were literally burned to cinders, right? Book burning. Has anything literally ever good come from burning books? I'm going to say no. I'm going to say if you're in favor of burning books, you're probably an ignorant and or hateful cunt. Uh, More importantly, this big territorial acquisition also gave the Japanese somewhere to settle. Shades of Hitler's Lebensraum here. Nearly 100,000 Japanese families settled in Korea with land they'd been given. Uh, They chopped down trees by the millions, planted non-native species, transforming a familiar landscape into something many Koreans didn't recognize. Right in that land, those Japanese families were given, sometimes just, you know, straight up taken from Koreans. Nearly 725,000 Korean workers forced to work in Japan and its other colonies. No doubt many of them working to produce the materials that would allow Japan's next conquest. And the death of the, uh, and then the death of the Meiji emperor in 1912 would shake things up in Japan. Though he didn't have much real political power, uh, he represented Japan's new international success. He was a beloved leadership symbol. Citizens lined up outside the Imperial Palace in Tokyo to pay their respects. General Nagi, a hero of the war against Russia, committed suicide with his wife following their lord and death as an act, uh, an act widely admired by the public. Not seen as a tragedy. General's wife killing themselves widely admired by the public. They're that dedicated to the emperor. How alarming. Not even the Nazis were quite that national, nationalistic. Many Japanese were all in on Japanese nationalism, willing to die for the cause, happy to die for the cause. Then just a few years later, World War I would give Japan a new opportunity to gain wealth, producing weapons for the conflict in Europe and light industrial products as well as shipping. At the same time, China's Qing Empire collapsed and Japan used the ensuing power vacuum to demand that China turn over much of its economic and political power to Japan. And then Japan's aggression would pave the way for many Chinese to join nationalist movements of their own. It was a time of upheaval, even within Japan. In Japan, many sectors of society, workers, farmers, intellectuals, suffragists, others, disagreed with the government's call for obedience and national unity. Some people favored communism over nationalism. Young people in the cities called modern boys, modern girls. They watched American movies, wore the latest largely Western fashions, 
bought products advertised in fashionable magazines. Elsewhere, inspired by the success of the Russian Revolution, radical Japanese intellectuals and workers tried to form unions to, for factory employees to obtain better wages or working conditions or to influence the government. Some women became authors, leaders of social groups, even politicians, despite great traditional social pressure to conform to the ideal traditional role of good wife and wise mother. At universities, intellectuals and professors taught a wide range of topics, including Marxism, Darwin's theory of evolution, Woodrow Wilson's internationalism, and even Freudian psychology. Japanese society became more fragmented than ever, which scared many traditional nationalists who started to fret that Japan was on the road to disunity. These thinkers argued that Japan needed to return to traditional values, reject European and American influences. They stressed unity, cultural and political, and the willingness to sacrifice for their countries in the face of their enemies. Britain, the U.S., and the newly formed Soviet Union. Fuck Russia, fuck the West. To these conservative thinkers, the military represented what their culture currently did not. Uh, something organized, uniform, with a clear singular purpose and a hierarchy of leadership. These strains of thinking became even more prominent after the 1929 stock market crash, as well as a giant earthquake that destroyed much of Tokyo in 1923. During the following years of the Great Depression, the Japanese lost 50% of their overseas sales. Domestic prices crashed. Japanese income fell 30%. Desperate times follow, right? Desperate measures follow the desperate times. And the tumultuousness that accompanied all this, many citizens turned to right-wing organizations, both civilian and military, to save them from hard times. The right-wing ultra-nationalist groups the nation was turning to opposed international diplomacy, which they claimed kept Japan weak by limiting its military options. Instead, they encouraged citizens to support, to love the army and navy abroad, and they praised the virtues of self-sacrifice and nationalism. They also used Shinto, part of Japan's uh, religious tradition, to idealize the Japanese spirit, its samurai virtues, right? Through local shrines and priests who preached Japan's superiority over other people and practiced rituals of uniquely Japanese purity and love for nature. Many Japanese people became convinced of Japan's sacred task to drive Euro-Americans out of all of Asia. And after that, maybe, you know, might as well just get rid of the of Europeans' uh, stock around the world. Just fucking kill Whitey in general. They came to believe that making war was a central part of their spiritual mission. The beauty of nature, especially of cherry blossoms falling, constant reminders of the brevity of human life, of sacred mountains and of the sea, came to be equated with heroic death, living for, dying for the national cause. Young men, this is a big cultural movement. Young men, both military officers and their colleagues in civilian organizations, such as the Amur River Society, or Amur, excuse me, River Society, expressed their nationalist passions through assassinations of politicians, industrialists, intellectuals. There was a lot of assassinations. Others who did not conform to their rigid standards of pure Japanese behavior and beliefs. Prime Minister Hamaguchi died from the wound he received in an assassination attempt, uh, becoming infected in 1931. Then Prime Minister uh, Unakai Tsuyoshi, shot by uh, 11 junior officers in 1932. Fucking bad time to be a prime minister in Japan. Both assassinations perpetrated by ultra-nationalists, impatient with their perceived corruption of political parties, eager for Japan to be driven by the military. Following Prime Minister Unakai's assassination, the Japanese military would control the government until the close of World War II. Beefing up the military during the 1930s and 40s, putting so much money into ships, aircrafts, other weapons, and tech, it required a lot of raw material, as well as oil. And Japan was very dependent on U.S. oil and American-controlled oil fields in Mexico. Ironically, the Japanese military found itself dependent on its most likely enemy for a crucial material resource. The nearest developed oil field to Japan lay in the Dutch East Indies at the end of a long north-south sea lane that the Japanese Navy felt now that it had to secure for themselves for its future domination ambitions. 
Thus, by the 1930s, Japan was now on a real quest, a path to dominate Asia and the Pacific and crush anyone who stood in their way. Manchuria would be their first target, which they took by force in 1931 after using the bombing of a Japanese railroad as a pretext for invasion. The Manchurian incident, a false flag operation used to justify war. They actually bombed the railroad themselves and poorly at that. The explosion was so weak it failed to destroy the track and actually a train passed over it minutes later with no fucking problem. But the Imperial Japanese Army accused Chinese dissidents of the act, right? And then responded with a full-on invasion that led to the occupation of Manchuria in which Japan established its puppet state of Manchukuo six months later. The deception was quickly exposed by the Litton or Lighten Report of 1932 leading Japan to diplomatic isolation and its March 1933 withdrawal from the League of Nations. Within a few short months, Japanese army overran the region, having encountered next to no resistance from the untrained Chinese army, and it went about consolidating its control on the resource-rich area. From 1932 to 1936, domestic political conflict escalated in Japan, as war in China required more and more troops and money to control the rising influence of Chinese nationalism. Unsurprisingly, they didn't love being ruled by tyrannical foreign oppressors. Uh, Many Japanese citizens became more and more convinced that Japan truly was uh, inherently superior, that the Japanese military could never be defeated, that Japanese culture and morality were uniquely pure and true. But, as was also the case in Germany, not all Japanese people were ultra-nationalists or militarists, of course. Resistance came internally from civilian politicians, fearful for their own power, uh, intellectuals unwilling to accept the simple-minded ideals of national unity and military virtue, from socialists, Christians, Others committed to self-determination of their peoples, right? Including uh, Chinese and Koreans uh, to the unity of the, you know, humankind. In a February 1936 election, resistance became significant when one of the mainstream parties won a majority with slogans like, what shall it be? Parliamentary government or fascism? Even the small socialist party made modest gains at the polls during the 1930s in the face of this high tide of ultranationalist propaganda. But only a week after those elections on February 26, 1936, some good old might made right. The Army First Division stationed in downtown Tokyo attacked the civilian government. Vote for parliamentary government all you want. Enlightened citizens, we see your social consciousness and we raise you a lot of fucking guns and willingness to kill you. Our way is the best way. You disagree? We'll put a new fucking hole in your head. After killing a number of dissenting high officials, they held several blocks of the central city for three days. The military's high command finally called in reinforcements. Many of them, not surprisingly from the Navy, forced the rebels to surrender. As the civilian government attempted to recover from this blow, their indecision and need to appeal to the military on some matters in order to not be attacked again, while trained to maintain their own autonomy and infighting with each other, as politicians are wont to do, uh, reinforced the views that politics was only about self-interest, not of high-minded patriotism and loyalty to the Japanese spirit in many people's eyes. With significant power, not only political, but over Japanese society and culture, the military now decides to attack China and become a true empire. Uh, interestingly, uh, if this is all confusing, it, it is a little confusing. There's no Hitler equivalent with Imperial Japan. Uh, the leadership structure way more disorganized. Emperor Hirohito was in charge in theory, but actually had no real power. I misspoke last week when I called him uh, ruthless. I, I know now that that is not necessarily the case. I assumed, assumed he had more power than he did. Uh, he did. He's actually a peace-loving ruler, manipulated into making various decisions by war-loving military advisors. And he either went along with their decisions, uh, you know, decisions made by a rotating cast of military leaders internally, or risked assassination or being deposed, right? There was no one leader in Imperial Japan that rallied the people towards ambitions of world dominance like Hitler. Rather, it was a series of politicians and, and generals who collectively 
just kept pushing the nationalistic, uh, you know, imperialistic ball further down the court towards war. Many Japanese politicians, military leaders, members of the general public hoped that the war with China, known as the Second Sino-Japanese War or War of Resistance, would establish a new order in East Asia, one based on Japanese superiority and overall Asian opposition to European and American imperialism and colonialism. This theory was called Japanese Asianism, a version of Pan-Asianism that worked a lot like Hitler's theories of Aryan unification to band people together in support of Japan's fascist government. And now soon, the U.S. would find themselves to be a military target of Japanese Asianism and be called to fight a formidable enemy, a newly fascist enemy, minus a true dictator who deeply hated Western culture and blamed Western powers for its instability, as well as used the justification of protecting Asia from Western powers for its own colonialism. It would be a war against a country that had grown to worship their military, not to worship a dictator like Hitler, but instead, kind of scarier, really, worship the institution of the military. Right. As an instrument of Japanese, uh, you know, nationalism and superiority to worship sacrifice, obedience, organization and winning at all costs. This made them a harder enemy to defeat with the Nazis. At least you could kind of, you know, try and cut the head off the snake to kill the movement. There was not a real equivalent to that with Imperial Japan. The snake didn't have a real head, a symbolic head in Hirohito, but not not a true one. OK, let's back up a little bit to the end of the 19th century now. Look more in depth at Japan's progress towards fascism, its relationship with the U.S., and the eventual outbreak of war in today's time suck timeline. But before I do, I want to add something interesting about World War II that doesn't get spoken about much. I could never figure out why Japan would align themselves with the Nazis and vice versa. The Nazis, with their vision of racial superiority, obviously looked down on the Japanese. And the Japanese, with their own vision of racial superiority, superiority and disdain of Europeans and European colonialism, well, they looked down on the Germans. So why would these two join forces? Well, they, they didn't, not exactly. There are actually no recorded instances of Japanese and German troops fighting alongside one another. They both just used each other, blatantly. Kind of like how Russia and Germany worked together to carve up Poland early in World War II and then fought later. Japan wanted to dominate Asia. Germany wanted Europe and North Africa. Had each of them gotten what they wanted, I do think eventually they would have collided with one another for control of the entire world. Uh, Japanese-German ties were always limited by distance, distrust, and claims of racial superiority. The Japanese were uninformed about Nazi plans for attacking the Soviet Union, for example, and the Germans were not told of Japan's plans to attack Pearl Harbor in Hawaii. So they weren't really this coalition of forces truly fighting together in the way the Allies did join together. Okay, a lot of info already laid out, a lot of context to help understand Japan and its relationship with the rest of the world leading up to World War II and its ambitions. I know I didn't go that in-depth with any of the info, didn't name a lot of names. There's just not space for it in this two-parter. It'll bog it down. I don't want to overreach. Uh, this two-parter, to be clear, meant to be a summary of World War II. Just to get our heads around the little more than the basics. Plus some, uh, you know, cool little deeper dives here and there to make you sound uh, that much uh, smarter to anyone you're talking about World War II with. If you want to get real detailed, there are so many other options you can explore after this episode. There's a some podcast called the History of World War II podcast. Uh, no idea if it's good or not. Haven't listened to it. But it has all, almost 400 episodes and counting, all of them about World War II, right? I get it. There's just so much. But that much depth, not for me. I just want to learn the basics and do it in a fun way. Have some weird laughs here and there and keep it entertaining. I uh, hope you're enjoying the presentation so far. I'm enjoying giving it. Hail Nimrod. And now before this week's big timeline, let's hear a word from our sponsors. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. 
So when you hear that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month, when you purchase a three-month plan, you're probably thinking, what's the catch? Well, there isn't one, really. They cut the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. It's pretty simple. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month and no catch. All plans come with unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts over. And in addition to saving money, like over a 50% price drop from what I was paying before, the network quality, in my experience, is better than it was with my old service provider. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash timesuck. That's mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. I still love peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, but I'd stopped eating them almost entirely a while back because the bread on top of the sugar from the jelly made me so sleepy. All those carbs causing me to want to take a nap after eating them. Enter Hero Bread. Hero Bread takes the fear of carbs out of bread, but still leaves you with that delicious bread taste. Hero Bread has zero to one gram of net carbs, zero grams of sugar, and it's high in fiber. It's also delicious and flavorful. The soft, fluffy experience you love when enjoying a savory breakfast burrito or mouth-watering cheeseburger. There is something for every craving, including sliced bread loaves, buns, and tortillas. And there are monthly small batch drops of indulgent favorites, like the two grams of net carbs Hero Croissant or the one gram of net carbs Hero Cheddar Biscuit. I had a loaf of Hero Classic White Bread delivered last week. Soft, fluffy, and delicious. Five grams of protein per slice, and it's high in fiber. And the best part? Hero Bread doesn't taste healthy. It tastes like bread. It's great. Don't give up on being a breadhead. Hero Bread is offering 10% off your order. Go to hero.co and use code TIMESUCK at checkout. That's TIMESUCK at H-E-R-O dot C-O. Thanks for sticking around. Off to that Pacific War now. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a time-suck timeline. Backing up to 1894 now, almost half a century before World War II would begin. But important to understand Japan's imperial ambitions and how they would evolve into the formidable enemy they were during World War II. 1894 marks the beginning of the Sino-Japanese War, a.k.a. the first Sino-Japanese War, in which Japan asserts its first gains as an imperial power collecting colonies from China. This year will also be a landmark one for Japanese immigration in the, uh, to the U.S. Japanese immigrants began coming to the U.S. Pacific Coast, primarily California, in the middle of the 19th century, but an, 18, uh, but an 1894 treaty would finally grant, um, sorry, I wrote it as 1984, but that was not, <laughs> clearly 1894 treaty, would finally grant Japanese people immigration rights. Finding migratory labor jobs and often working farms, railroads, and mines for low wages, the Japanese soon found themselves a major target of discriminatory campaigns in America. They were excluded, for example, from joining the American Federation of Labor, largest union in the country, just not allowed to join. And the Asiatic Exclusion League was founded in 1905 with the express purpose of putting a stop to Japanese and Korean immigration. How fucked up is that? A league of people is publicly founded, gathered around the sole purpose of like, ah, get them the fuck out of here. No more Asians in this country. Uh, and there was no mainstream pushback against that league. 
This is following several decades of anti-Chinese sentiments. Riots, even massacres of Chinese people have been occurring in the U.S. for years. Anti-Chinese legislation had been passed decades earlier. This is all happening not that long ago. 1905, the San Francisco Chronicle launched an 18-month anti-Japanese newspaper campaign that warned of an invasion of, quote, little brown men with headlines like the Japanese invasion, the problem of the hour. God damn, these little brown men, are they're ruining our city. I don't like them because they're different. Yeah, they speak a different language. They worship different gods. They, they don't even fucking eat with forks for Christ's sake. Get them out of here. Change is always terrified. So many of us beat sex, which is, which is really crazy if you think about it because change is constant. The world is always changing, right? And it's always going to change. You can try and fight it. You know, you get mad, become the stereotypical angry old man or woman, or you can just make your peace with navigating the continual currents of the big river of life we're all swimming in. It's never going to fucking stop for you no matter how much you want it to, right? That's it. when people just get too conservative that way. And they're like, wow, we got to make things like this. Well, no. Yes, let's let's get let's cap recapture some things uh, from the past that were better and, and work on that going forward. But like, you don't get to go back in time ever. And I know it's not always easy to navigate with change. Not at all. I often have that feeling of like, whoa, whoa, can we just stop for a second? Can I have a moment, right? To sit in this reality a little bit. You know, I'm a nostalgic person. I love watching shit from the 80s. This is a great time for me, right? I'm like, oh man, life was so simple. It was fucking great. I like this space. I don't want to leave it. But time's like, so what? Time just keeps on marching forward. Best to march with it. Uh, now on to the Russo-Japanese War uh, I touched on earlier. This conflict would begin in 1904. By the end of 1904, the Japanese Navy had sunk every ship in Russia's Pacific Fleet, had gained control of its garrison on a hill overlooking the harbor of Port Arthur at the tip of China's Laodong Peninsula, a major trading port. In early January 1905, a Russian Major General Anatoly Stessel, commander of the Port Arthur garrison, decided to surrender. Much to the surprise of both the Japanese and the Tsar in Moscow, believing that the harbor was no longer worth defending, in the face of humiliating losses. With that, the Japanese had achieved a significant victory and dealt a blow to the Russian Tsar that would help lead to the Tsarist Russia's, uh, you know, to the fall, to the end of it, and pave the way for that Bolshevik revolution, the rise of the Soviet Union. Within two months of Russia's surrender, Japan had taken over Seoul and the rest of the neighboring Korean peninsula. The fighting continued with the Treaty of Portsmouth, which was mediated by U.S. President Teddy Roosevelt uh, in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, during the spring and summer of 1905. Although Japan had won the war decisively, victory had come at a severe cost. The country's coffers were virtually empty. Japan was broke. And because of that, Japan didn't have the negotiating power many expected. Under the terms of the treaty, which was signed by both parties, September 5th, 1905, Russia accepted the port, that Port Arthur belonged to the Japanese while retaining the northern half of Sakhalin Island, a massive island that sits roughly 30 miles north of Japan and now belongs to Russia. Sakhalin, I think. Uh, I messed that one up a little bit. The Russians had also agreed to leave Manchuria and recognize Japanese control of the Korean Peninsula. But Roosevelt sided with Tsar Nicholas in his refusal to pay indemnities to Japan. Sort of like the reverse of what would happen in World War I with Germany and the Treaty of Versailles. In that instance, the losing country, Germany was forced to pay reparations to France, which crumbled the German economy and paved the way for the rise of Hitler. In this instance, the treaty's failure to acknowledge Japan's win made them even more nationalistic. Japanese accused the Americans of fucking them over, cheating them, and days of anti-American riots in Tokyo ensued. This also marked the first time in modern history that an Asian nation had defeated a European one in military combat. It gave Japan's citizens a new rallying point. As expected, tensions between Japan and the U.S. still, uh, you know, high in 1906. 
that like people in Japan weren't hearing how Japanese people weren't being discriminated against and hated in the U.S. And then Teddy, Teddy Roosevelt, you know, fucks him over this treaty. Relations made even worse when in an when in October 11th, 1906, uh, regulation passed by the San Francisco Board of Education called for all Japanese and Korean students, along with Chinese students, to be sent to segregated, quote, oriental schools. Despite the fact that there only 93 Japanese students, 90, 25 of whom were born in America, lived in this district. So very cringy. Japanese government rightfully outraged. President Roosevelt also outraged, but the bill still passes. Uh, Roosevelt said to, to shut Japanese students out from public schools is a wicked absurdity. He told Congress that in December of 1906, and Congress was like, nah, we don't care. 1907, the U.S. and Japan uh, reached what was called a gentleman's agreement. This is pretty fucked up. The gentleman's agreement of 1907 and 1908 was an informal arrangement between the U.S. and Japan to ease growing tensions between the two countries, particularly pertaining to immigration. The agreement stated that the U.S. would neither impose nor enforce restrictions on Japanese immigration if Japan would no longer allow further immigration to the U.S. That is ridiculous. Hey, Japan, uh, we're not going to ban any Japanese for entering the uh, good old U.S. of A. Ah, that's not, our, that's not the way we operate. G give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses, yearning to breathe free, the, the wretched re refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless. Uh, tempest tossed to me, I lift my lamp beside the golden door. Oh, fuck yeah, bro. But do us a favor. Do not allow any fucking more of you gross oriental fucks to ever come here again. Capisce? We won't turn any Japanese away as long as you don't fucking send them here. Okay? That is absurd. Uh, this agreement also called for Roosevelt to force uh, San Francisco to repeal its Japanese-American school segregation order. In exchange, Japan would deny immigration passports to Japanese laborers. While still allowing the wives, children, and parents of current immigrants to enter the U.S., well, many male Japanese immigrants now in, uh, engage in arranged marriages uh, to so-called picture brides. If a Japanese-American man married a woman who was in Japan, he could bring his new wife into the country legally while becoming a picture bride, so-called because husbands just selected them from photos, uh, provided some women with the opportunity to start new lives in America, also entailed risks since the women, you know, didn't know these dudes or the condition of their future homes. More than 10,000 Japanese women entered the U.S. until 1924, and 15,000 plus immigrated to the territory of Hawaii. At the time, Japanese immigrants made up approximately 1% of the population of California. What a weird thing to be a, a mail-order bride, to have no idea what kind of person your husband's going to be, or what he'll look like. And if your husband is ordering you from a catalog, I'm going to say odds are he's not the cream of the crop, like looks-wise or social skill-wise. Right? Like if he can't just get a, a local lady, <laughs> probably not, probably not the fucking top tier dude. You're not, you're not seeing it for the first time and thinking, oh shit, what a looker. I hit the jackpot. No, it's probably more like, oh no, no, no. Oh, whoa. I, I have to fuck that. Does that bridge troll even have a dick? So much of history makes me feel so lucky to have the life I do right now. Uh, on the heels of this gentleman's agreement, which is not very gentlemanly, on November 3rd, 1908, the Root-Takira uh, Agreement was entered between the U.S. and Japan, stemming a potential war. With the defeat of Spain in the Spanish-American War of 1898 and Spain ceding the Philippines and Guam over to the U.S., the U.S. had now become a major power in East Asia. The American annexation of Hawaii, also in 1898, and aggressive economic policies in China in the early 20th century were increasingly perceived as a threat by the Japanese government, right? U.S. trying to take shit over in their area. The American government, on the other hand, increasingly concerned by Japanese territorial, uh, territorial 
ambitions at the expense of China and with the modernizing and strengthening Imperial Japanese Navy in the aftermath of the Russo-Japanese War. Negotiated by Secretary of State Elihu Root and Japanese Ambassador uh, Takahira Kagoro. And I don't know how this uh, the Secretary of State Elihu Root, maybe. I've never seen that name before. E-L-I-H-U. Uh, this, was a, this treaty was a pledge to maintain the existing status quo in the Pacific along with China's independence. It was a, don't fuck with our shit in the Pacific and we won't fuck with your shit kind of deal. Critics charged that Roosevelt was sacrificing Chinese interests in Manchuria and Korea for the sake of improved relations with Japan. But the agreement was seen as a success that helped avoid a war with Japan by most people. 1910, Korea is formally annexed by Japan. We already covered this in our lead a bit, how Japan became uh, more and more imperialistic under the guise of liberating nations from European colonial rule or the possibility of European colonial rule. From the formal declaration on August 29th, 1910 until 1945, the nation would be considered part of Japan and Japan would abuse the fuck out of Korea. Uh, Japan's empire grows stronger. Meanwhile, back in the U.S., although Japan and the San Francisco Board of Education adhered to the Gentlemen's Agreement, which was never ratified by Congress, it didn't end discrimination against Japanese immigrants. Attacks and protests against Japanese immigrants and businesses were frequent. They often led to assaults, uh, murders on occasion. Their perpetrators too often escaped any form of punishment. Further inflaming U.S.-Japanese relations, California's Webb-Haney Act of 1913, also known as the Alien Land Act, banned, quote, all aliens ineligible for citizenship, land-owning rights. Yet another way to remind the Japanese that they were not wanted, that they were second-class citizens. Uh, then in 1914, Japan enters World War I. Uh, though they would enter on the side of the Allies after a request for assistance from Great Britain on August 6, 1914, Japan's concerns during the war would mainly be using the war to exercise its growing influence in Asia and the Pacific. Britain had requested help from Japan's Navy in hunting down armed German merchant ships, and Japan agreed, happy to protect the waters it saw as Japanese territory. As one Japanese statesman, uh, you know who, you know, uh, I don't know how to say his first name, I'll be totally honest with you, uh, couldn't, find it, couldn't find it online. I-N-O-U-E, fucking your guess is as good as mine, uh, Karu, uh, put it, the war was divine aid for the development of the destiny of Japan. On August 14th, 1914, Japan delivers an ultimatum to Germany. Germany. We consider it highly important and necessary to the present situation to take measures to remove the causes of all disturbance of peace in the Far East. That's how the ultimatum began. And to safeguard general interest as contemplated in the agreement of alliance between Japan and Great Britain, i.e. Germany, leave now, or we'll fucking kill you. Uh, when Germany did not respond, Japan declared war on August 23rd. Its Navy immediately began preparing an assault against Tsingtao. With Britain contributing two battalions to Japan's force of 60,000, the Japanese approached the naval base across China, breaching China's neutrality. On November 7th, the German garrison at Tsingtao surrendered and Japanese troops were home by the end of the year. Japan's foreign minister, uh, Kato Takai, or excuse me, Ke Kato Tataki, would skillfully use World War I to redefine his country's relationship with his most important rival, China, and to assert his supremacy in the Far East. Forcing an internally divided China to submit to the majority of the humiliating list of demands, known as 21 Demands, in early 1915, Cato extended Japan's control over the Shantung Peninsula and indirectly over the rest of China. These demands included shit like uh, China not leasing any land on the coast to any other power on any pretext whatsoever. Uh, the Chinese government also had to agree to Japan's building a railway connecting Chifu or Lungkao with an existing railway that opened Chinese cities to foreigners, aka Japanese businessmen, and so on. Japanese economy now begins to boom during wartime, largely on the strength of the exploitation of new and improved access to Chinese raw materials and exploited labor. Then as part of the post-war settlement at Versailles, 
Japan was given control of some Pacific islands, formerly under German rule, such as the Marshall Islands, Micronesia, and the Northern Marina Islands. And Japan was allowed to maintain its hold on Shantung until uh, Chinese sovereignty was restored in 1922. During the next few decades, ambitious Japanese militarist leaders would assert their hold uh, ever more strongly on the Japanese government and its powerful economy, clashing brutally with China and other rivals in the Far East while readying themselves for another great struggle many of them had long anticipated between Japan and the U.S. In 1919, Japan fails to get a racial equality clause inserted into the covenant of the League of Nations. This is big as far as tilting them towards war. This is pretty fucked up. In the Treaty of Versailles, World War I was officially concluded. Global bloodshed turned towards new and fragile peace. The treaty spoke in idealistic terms about the international community's future, that countries should have a right to self-determine, that a war's victors should negotiate how to move forward, that defeated powers should be held responsible for damages they inflict. Seeking to solidify themselves as a new world power, as a member of the Allies, and as the only non-white international superpower, the Japanese delegation of the Versailles negotiations sought to add a little bit of language about, I don't know, maybe some racial equality into the proposed treaty's preamble. Here are the exact words that Japan initially proposed. The equality of nations being a basic principle of the League of Nations, the high contracting parties agree to accord as soon as possible to all alien nationals of states, members of the League, equal and just treatment in every respect, making no distinction, either in law or in fact, on account of their race or nationality. The added language would have meant that Japanese immigrants coming to the U.S. could be treated the same as white European immigrants. France got behind the proposal. They're like, oh yeah, fuck yeah. Uh, Italy was like, oh, that's cool. Greece was like, hell yeah. But then Australia was like, nah, mate, fuck that. Nah, fuck that, you fucking cunts. Now Australia pushed back, seriously though. The British Dominion had instituted a white Australia policy in 1901, limiting non-white immigration. Australian Prime Minister William Morris Hughes strong-armed the rest of the British delegation into opposing this clause. And U.S. President Woodrow uh, Wilson, he kind of fucking bitched out and supported it too. Not a good look. A lot of prejudiced U.S. lawmakers at home supported Wilson. Democratic California Senator James Phelan sent a telegram to the U.S. delegation in Paris writing, Believe Western senators and others will oppose any loophole by which Oriental people will possess such equality with white race in United States. It is a vital question of self-preservation. That's how I picture him talking. It is a vital question of our self-preservation. That's like uh, Asian people were actually an alien fucking race coming down to destroy us, right? From some uh, other planet. It's vital for our self-preservation. Oh, no. What if we all were to start enjoying delicious udon noodles instead of our traditional mashed potatoes? <laughs> like, I'm not sure what was there was to fear other than just a culture being different, right? Japanese culture, not perfect. Historically, pretty fucking racist. Uh, same with white American culture. M maybe that's what we were afraid of, right? With Japan in particular, being on the bottom rung of a new racial hierarchy ladder. Oh, we will not allow these Japanese racists to come redo are carefully imposed high. We are the we're the most important races in this country. We cannot have another group of races who sees us as being on the bottom of a racial ladder when we're the they're the bottom. We will we are stronger races than those racists, and we must put that in law. Uh, President Wilson came up with a new way of uh, came up with a way of killing the proposal without ever openly saying he opposed it. He imposed a unanimity ruling that effectively squashed the racial equality language, even though a majority of nations supported it, right? If we can't all agree, well, we can't have it. Uh, so the League of Nations didn't go for it. 
And in fact, they would codify that nearly the opposite. Article 22 denied independence to Arabs, Africans, and Pacific Islanders, once ruled by Ottomans and Germans. Ouch. In the condescending language of moral uplift, this article designated them as, quote, peoples not yet able. I feel like I should read this in a, a, a people's not yet able to stand by themselves under the strenuous conditions of the modern world. They try hard. You know, they, they want to get it, but they're just not there. Uh, therefore, they'd be placed under temporary European rule as a, a, sac- a sacred trust of civilization. They're cute. Oh, they look cute, but they don't think too good. So we got to we gotta take care of them. Uh, these territories, many of them in the Middle East and Africa, would now be uh, given over to Great Britain and France to administer. Yeek. Oh, those, those, those silly Japanese, they're trying hard. They mean well. They're just not, you know, oh, how shall I put this? They're not uh, uh, full human beings. They're not smart. <laughs> not to run their own shit. Well, we'll check back in with them later. Uh, Q Japan, uh, Q Japan, Q Japan, and other Asian nations now, you know, uh, fucking hating it. The the League of Nations, obviously, and also Q uh, Japan and many other nations today dominating many educational assessment tests. Uh, in a nod to appease Japan, Woodrow Wilson supports his demand to keep war acquired territories like Shantung. But that doesn't make up for everything else, right? The, the incredibly condescending language. Just a few years later, anti-Japanese sentiment further increases in the U.S. The Immigration Act of 1924, a.k.a. the Johnson-Reed Act, signed into law by President Calvin Coolidge, making the Gentleman's Agreement obsolete. It says, of all the races ineligible to citizenship under our law, the Japanese are the least assimilable and the most dangerous to our country. Uh, this is what V.S. McClatchy, a California newspaper publisher, said while lobbying for the act. So that was not a quote from the law. It was with this guy, McClatchy, uh, which established a national origin quota system and a ban on Japanese immigrants until the law was repealed in 1952, almost three full decades later. They're not assimilable. They won't, uh, they won't play ball over here. Uh, meanwhile, Japan becomes increasingly nationalistic and militaristic. This comes after a period of increased liberalization, reforms in the first few years of the 1920s, when it looked like uh, you know fascism wasn't likely in Japan. On the international side, liberalization meant that Japan agreed with the U.S., Britain, and France to limit the size of its navy, also agreed to leave the Shandong province of China, curb its military spending. Domestically, reforms included extending the right to vote to all adult men, growing the power of political parties, and increased civic participation for citizens. But on the downside, these political parties were often manipulated by the uh, Zaibatsu, Japan's powerful business leaders, who pushed for policies that would favor international trade, right? This was a group of dudes like the Fucking Japanese Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg, Elon Musk, and Jeff Bezos of the time. If they had even more say, with uh, more sway with the government. Uh, Japanese society becoming increasingly tumultuous despite increased civic participation of the middle class. Rural peasants remain poor. Factory workers are drawn to socialist ideas as they earn low wages and watch the businessmen get rich through political meddlings. Meanwhile, younger people adopt Western fashions and philosophies. Conservatives blame Western influences for young people's lack of obedience and respect for authority. Fucking kids these days. These conservative leaders also complained about government corruption, the influence of the Zaibatsu. In 1923, a major earthquake in Tokyo kills more than 100,000 people, causes uh, major property damage, a lot of unemployment. Rampaging Japanese mobs subsequently murder several thousand ethnic Koreans and leftists who were accused of setting fires and looting in the quake's aftermath. Shit's getting wild. Just as Tokyo begins to recover, another crisis hits the Great Depression. Trade suffers, urban unemployment soars. Shit gets so bad for rural peasants, many end up uh, very close to starvation. Numerous Japanese military officials, many of them nationalists, they blame the depression on Western influences. They capitalize on all this. They blame Japan's struggles on the fact that Japan had agreed to curb its imperialistic impulses. 
said that renewed expansion will provide Japan with the resource it needs to fuel its industries, provide wealth and prosperity to all. We just got to fucking take shit over and we're all going to be doing great. These military officials would grow in power, eclipsing the power of the civilian government. Unlike the civilian government, the military possess an overall unity of purpose based on centuries-old xenophobia, a distaste for civilian rule, and modern Asia's first victories over Western imperialist powers. And the public overall supported them. Another military advantage was the fact that Japan's government had made its army and navy ministers more powerful than the rest of the cabinet that advised the emperor, co-equal with the prime minister, but really much more powerful because they controlled the military. They had direct access to the throne in an emperor-worshipping nation. Also, by simply refusing to name a new prime minister, the military could force the disillusion of any new civilian government it disapproved of. The civilian government intimidated, it looked as if only the emperor could rein in these freewheeling extremists. But Emperor Hirohito, not up to that task. They intimidated him as well. Emperor Hirohito ascended to the throne in 1926, eldest son of Crown Prince uh, Yoshihito. Uh, born on April 29th, 1901, within the confines of the Ioma, uh, I didn't get the pronunciation for this one, I, ah, Ayama, perhaps, palace in Tokyo, apologies. Uh, according to custom, imperial family members were not raised by their parents. Instead, Hirohito spent his early years in the care of a first, uh, a first, a retired vice admiral, and then an imperial attendant. From age seven to 19, Hirohito attended schools set up for the children of nobility received rigorous instruction in military and religious matters, along with other subjects such as math and physics. 1921, Hirohito and a 34-man entourage traveled to Western Europe for a six-month tour. First time a Japanese crown prince had ever gone abroad. No doubt angering all the conservative military leaders who didn't want Japan to have a relationship with the West. Upon his return to Japan, Hirohito became regent for his chronically ill father, assumed duties of emperor, became emperor December of 1926 after his father's death and chose Showa which roughly translates to enlightened harmony as a reign name. And he was not very effective. Nowhere near up to the task of standing up to the military. Although he disapproved of the army's overseas escalations and uh, you know a lot of their violence, he didn't fucking do anything about it. He essentially fired the prime minister in 1929, dealing a blow to the civilian government. The next prime minister, probably at the military's behest. Next prime minister was shot, mortally wounded, 1932. Another prime minister assassinated. And from then on, almost all prime ministers came from the military rather than from political parties, which were disbanded altogether in 1940. But before that, in late 1930, the military government would begin shoring up even more power when Lieutenant Colonel Kingoro Hashimoto uh, formed the Cherry Society. Consisting mostly of mid-level officers, it was dedicated to establishing a military-controlled social structure in Japan. They would briefly plan a coup, but later would simply just decide to wage their war without Tokyo's support, increasing Japan's uh, territory, resources, and prestige. Again, it's just not as organized as Hitler. Uh, but they would just like sometimes just it'd be like uh, just doing shit without the approval of Congress or whatever and be like what the fuck are you going to do about it with much of the civilian population back in the military worshipping its authority and ideals you know there wasn't a ton of pushback That's so interesting to me uh, this this was as if like if the US military today just went ahead and joined the war in Ukraine without checking in with the president just just told him later just hey Joe uh, just gotta give you a little heads up we're, uh, we're over in Russia right now fucking a whole bunch of shit up we'll check back in with you later and we'll let you know how it's going. You know, uh, but, but guys, I never said uh, you could. Uh, hello? Hello? Oh, gosh dang. I guess everyone just does what they want. Like it was, just, like it was that kind of equivalent. Which I guess, you know, could happen. Uh, on September 18th, 1931, the Japanese army sets up a small bomb to explode on their Manchurian Railroad. I mentioned that earlier so they could blame it on China, that whole false flag operation, so they could seize control of a large portion of Manchuria. Chinese soldiers ordered not to resist. The Japanese media celebrates the victory, which uh, helps generate patriotic war fervor. Uh, 
The military government would justify this to its citizens with the concept of the greater East Asian co-prosperity sphere, colloquially uh, Asia for Asians, saying that their rule would be one UN, uh, their rule, you know, it'd be better than a UN influence won by Western powers. The international community reacted angrily to the Manchurian incident. U.S. Secretary of State uh, Henry Stimson assured what would become known as the Stimson Doctrine, stating that the U.S. would not recognize agreements between the Japanese and Chinese that limited free commercial intercourse in the region. China appeals to the League of Nations, saying that the Manchurian incident was an act of aggression by Japan and the establishment of the state of Manchuria would not be recognized. League of Nations reported that Japan's claim that it had invaded Manchuria for self-defense was not valid in the state of Manchuria, right? Again, not recognized. But then Japan told them to go fuck themselves. Japan withdrew from the League of Nations, March 27th, 1933, isolating itself further from Western international you know, powers. Uh, further beefing up its war machine. March 1st, 1934, the previously deposed Chinese emperor, Pu Yi, was enthroned by Japan to serve as a puppet emperor of Manchukuo. So while the state of Manchuria was supposedly freed by the Japanese, it was just actually under their control, of course. Uh, As Japan neared its entrance to World War II, the Japanese media staunchly pushes the spirit of Japan, it's called, an ultra-nationalistic celebration that promotes a native Japanese harmony. This movement feeds off the fears of a large section of the Japanese population who were afraid of Western colonialism, right? So they bought into this propaganda. Japan had to go fucking take over these countries before the West did. On November 25th, 1936, Japan signs the Anti-Comintern Comintern Pact. My cold not helping me today. Uh, with Nazi Germany. It concludes a similar agreement with Italy in 1937. Japan, again, didn't actually give a fuck about Germany or Italy but knew that they were building up their own war machines and had a shared hatred of many of the same world powers that they did, right? Should they go rogue in Europe, it would provide Japan a great little window to do the same in Asia. Uh, based on how easily Japan had overrun Manchuria and anti-Chinese and anti-Chinese resentment amongst the Japanese, Japan now eager to invade China. At Marco Polo Bridge, which was just a few miles outside of Beijing, on July 5th, 1937, some Japanese soldiers fire some shots that lead to a war quickly breaking out between Japan and Chinese nationalists. The Second Sino-Japanese War now, the War of Resistance, right? What many see as the true beginning of World War II. Japanese soldiers go on a violent rampage, committing mass murder, mass rapes of Chinese civilians, as I said in that uh, rape of Nanking, went over earlier. And rape not just limited to Nanking, there was so much fucking rape committed by Japanese soldiers in this war that the Japanese government, this is so fucking crazy, the Japanese government actually signed off on opening like official brothels wherever troops were stationed in the hopes that their troops would just do less raping and create less anti-Japanese pushback amongst locals because of all the raping if they just had easier access to sex workers. Seriously, the problem is that widespread. In World War II, no one raped like the Japanese. They appeared to have been the world champions of rape by leaps and bounds. Allied soldiers, German soldiers, Russian soldiers all committed scores of raping, unfortunately. The exact number of German women and girls raped by Soviet troops during the war and following occupation is uncertain, but historians estimate their numbers are likely in the hundreds of thousands Possibly as high as 2 million. U.S. soldiers suspected of raping hundreds of women, if not more, thousands perhaps in the later World War II Battle of Okinawa. I had no idea prior to this week that World War II was so fucking full of rape, but it sure was. And it also sure seems that if mass rape was a contest in World War II, Japan would have like easily taken home the gold medal. Uh, Japanese brothels were staffed by around 200,000 women from occupied nations, primarily Korea, deemed comfort women forced into sexual slavery this was done to cut back again on on on, uh, all the raping of locals and a huge outbreak of venereal disease within japanese troops due to all the wanton raping 
This plan uh, did not work on either front. Occupied nations still hated Japanese soldiers for now forcing their women to become sex workers. And venereal disease, even a bigger problem. Japanese Emperor uh, Hirohito didn't condone any of this, but perhaps because he worried the military would, you know, make him abdicate the throne if he stood up to them, you know, didn't punish anyone responsible. Again, he's a fucking puppet. Um, in the end, despite hoping that Manchuko, uh, Manchukuo would help create a self-sufficient economy full of all the necessary materials needed to build a bigger and more improved military for Japan, Japan saw that it instead drained their economy further which emphasized the need to rely on imported resources, such as oil from several countries like the U.S. So they now, you know, need to justify, or now need to conquer more territory for their ambitions. September 1st, 1939, Germany invades Poland, kicking off World War II in Europe. Japan won't become involved until June 14th, 1940. On that date, with the fall of France to Nazi Germany, Japan moves now to occupy French Indochina, which is the, now the nations of Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia. In response, July of 1940, Franklin Roosevelt cuts off shipments of scrap iron, steel, and aviation fuel to Japan, even as he, though, still allows American oil to continue flowing to the empire. Oil companies, got to keep making that oil money, even if it definitely is literally fueling a dangerous enemy and helping them build a terrifying military across the Pacific. Uh, What could go wrong? September 22nd, 1940, the Empire of Japan and Vichy French Indochina, Vichy France, uh, being a new French government that cooperated with the Nazis in an unoccupied area of southern France. And this government signs an accord granting Japan the rights to station up to 6,000 troops in Indochina and to move troops and supplies through the former French territory. Japan's empire is growing, right? Another easy victory for them. Japan enters the war formally September 27th, 1940, when they sign the Tripartite Pact uh, with Italy and Germany. Tripartite, word I was unsure how to pronounce last week. Uh, This formalizing of the alliance was aimed directly at neutral America, designed to force the U.S. to think twice before venturing in on the side of the Allies. The pact also recognized two separate spheres of influence. Japan acknowledged the leadership of Germany and Italy in the establishment of a new order in Europe, while Japan was granted lordship over greater East Asia, carving up the world. In July of 1941, Japan moved into southern Indochina in preparation for an attack against both British Malaya a source for rice, rubber, and tin, and also the oil-rich Dutch East Indies. This prompted Roosevelt to freeze all Japanese assets in the U.S. on July 26, 1941, which effectively cut off Japan's access to U.S. oil. And now Japan is, to put it mildly, super fucking pissed. The attack on Pearl Harbor didn't actually come out of nowhere. It happened as a response to the U.S. cutting off Japanese access to our oil. Naval planners in Tokyo now order their finest strategist, Admiral Yanomoto, to draw up a plan for destroying U.S. power in the Pacific and rendering the Western Pacific sea lanes, including those to the oil fields, safe for Japanese shipping. Yamamoto, uh, I think I said an end the first time, Yamamoto tried to persuade his superiors that attacking the U.S. would be catastrophic for Japan and that Japan would never be able to match U.S. industrial might. He argued from firsthand experience. He studied and worked in the U.S. in the 1920s, was very familiar with American military and industrial technology. But other Japanese disagreed with him because Japan is the fucking best. And, uh, you know, uh, as a good soldier and patriot, he went ahead with his job despite reservations. Japan also begins to secretly ready its southern operation, a massive military attack that would target Great Britain's large naval facility in Singapore and American installations in the Philippines and at Pearl Harbor, thus creating the path for conquest of the Dutch East Indies. While some diplomatic uh, relations uh, go down in the U.S., between the U.S. and Japan regarding all this, neither side really budges and accomplishes anything. Uh, Japan refuses to cede any of its newly acquired territory. U.S. won't sell oil to Japan unless it immediately withdraws troops from China and Indochina. Between July 25th, 
July 27th, 1941. Britain, Australia, and New Zealand freeze Japanese assets, pushing Japan further towards more aggressive acts. Worried about a war with Japan that's seeming more and more inevitable. The U.S. Army in the Far East, uh, it's the USAFFE, is their acronym, is created on July 26th, 1941, and it consists of about 100,000 100, Filipinos and 20,000 American soldiers. This is an attempt to beef up the American presence in the Pacific and hopefully not let the Philippines fall to Japan. November 6, 1941, Japan creates the Southern Expeditionary Army led by General Hisachi. Uh, Hisachi. Hisachi. There we go. Who had previously been their Minister of War. The Army was ordered to prepare for war with the U.S. in the event that negotiations with the U.S. didn't succeed peacefully, meeting Japanese objectives. Included in this plan was the occupation of the Philippines in preparation for a greater Asia war. Uh, the Philippines had raw materials Japan wanted for its armed forces. November 26, 1941, as U.S. officials present the Japanese with a 10-point statement reiterating their long-standing position on what they needed Japan to do to reopen trade, the Japanese Imperial Navy orders its armada that includes 414 planes aboard six aircraft carriers to set to the sea. Following a plan devised by Admiral Yamamoto, who had earlier studied at Harvard and served as Japan's naval attache in Washington, D.C., the flotilla had one objective, destroy the U.S. Pacific Fleet Base at Pearl Harbor to wipe out the U.S.'s chance at dominating the Pacific. Had they actually accomplished that, the war could have ended up following a very different course and Japan could easily control Hawaii right now and God knows what else. To catch the Americans by surprise, the ships would maintain strict radio silence throughout their 3,500-mile trek to a predetermined launch sector 230 miles north of the Hawaiian island of Oahu. Oahu, Jesus. On November, on December 6th, all these words, 1941, uh, the U.S. intercepted a Japanese message that inquired about ship movements and berthing positions at Pearl Harbor. The cryptologist gave, gave the message to her superior who said he would get back to her on Monday, December 8th. But by Monday, it'd be too late. On the morning of December 7th, 1941, Japan bombs her Pearl Harbor. This is the incident that would officially start the Pacific War, bringing the U.S. into World War II and up against two fucking massive and mighty empires simultaneously. Because American military leaders were not expecting an attack so close to home, the naval facilities at Pearl Harbor had been left relatively undefended. Almost the entire Pacific fleet was moored around Ford Island in the harbor and hundreds of airplanes were squeezed onto adjacent airfields. For the Japanese, Pearl Harbor was an irresistibly easy target. At 6 a.m. Sunday, December 7th, the first wave of Japanese planes lifts off from their carriers, followed by a second wave an hour later. That same day, a radar operator on Oahu saw a large group of airplanes on his screen heading towards the island. He called a superior who told him, ah, it's probably just a group of US B-17 bombers. Ah, don't fucking worry about it. Whoops. Guessing that superior got a bit of an ass chewing later. Bad day at the office. Uh, led by Captain Mitsuo, the Japanese pilots spotted land and assumed their po attack positions around 7.30 a.m. 23 minutes later, with his bomber perched above the unsuspecting American ships moored in pairs along Pearl Harbor's battleship row, Mitsuo breaks radio silence to shout, Tora, Tora, Tora! Tiger, tiger, tiger. The coded message informing the Jap uh, Japanese fleet that they had caught the Americans by surprise. At 8.10, an 1,800-pound bomb smashes through the deck of the battleship USS Arizona, lands in her forward ammunition magazine. The ship fucking explodes, sinks with more than 1,000 shocked and dying men trapped inside. Next, torpedoes pierce the shell of the battleship USS Oklahoma. With 400 sailors aboard, the Oklahoma loses her balance, rolls onto her side, slips underneath the sea. Less than two hours later, the surprise attack is over. Every battleship in Pearl Harbor, USS Arizona, USS Oklahoma, California, West Virginia, Utah, Maryland, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, Nevada, add USS in front of all those names, had sustained significant damage. 
Most important, 2,403 sailors, soldiers, and civilians were killed and about 1,000 people wounded. America is fucking shook. While the attack inflicted significant destruction, the fact that Japan failed to destroy American repair shops and fuel oil tanks did mitigate the damage. And much more significantly, no American aircraft carrier happened to be at Pearl Harbor that day. That's big. Pearl Harbor often had three aircraft carriers there, the USS Enterprise, Lexington, and Saratoga. Had the Japanese waited a bit, they could have struck Pearl Harbor by surprise, possibly sunk all of them, which would have greatly hindered the later war effort against them because aircraft carriers would become the most important naval weapons during the Pacific War. The Japanese immediately followed their Pearl Harbor assault with attacks against uh, U.S. and British bases in the Philippines, Guam, Midway Island, Wake Island, Malaya, and Hong Kong. Within days, the Japanese would be masters of the Pacific. But they didn't get those aircraft carriers. Big misstep. At the White House, Roosevelt learned of the attack and as he was, fin- as he was finishing lunch and preparing to tend to his uh, stamp collection. All right, his uh, stamp collection. Whatever, fucking dork. Uh, come on. Uh, FDR spent the remainder of the afternoon receiving updates, writing the address he attended to deliver to Congress the following day, asking for a declaration of war against Japan. As he drafted and redrafted the speech, Roosevelt focused on rallying the nation behind a war many hoped to, uh, uh, hoped to avoid. Meanwhile, on the West Coast, just hours after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, the FBI rounded up 1,291 Japanese-American community and religious leaders, arresting them with no evidence and just freezing their assets, you know, just to uh, be safe. Yeah. December 8th, 1941, Franklin Roosevelt addresses Congress. He knows there's no avoiding war. His speech will become famous as a response to a day of carnage that Americans could have scarcely imagined before it took place. And as a mastery of language that would push the neutral U.S. to formally declare war, Roosevelt would say, going to add a little sound. Don't worry, it's not going to be uh, too loud, just to give some dramatic effect. Yesterday, on December 7th, 1941, a day of the limited infamy. The United States of America was suddenly deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. <laughs> Sorry, I never get tired of doing that. Obviously, that was a fucking terrible choice of music. <laughs> Let me give something much more, much more, you know, uh, appropriate for this for this very important speech. All right, sorry. Click this little button here, and here we go. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. The United States was at peace with that nation and at the solicitation of Japan was still in conversation with the government and its emperor looking toward the maintenance of peace in the Pacific. Indeed, one hour after Japanese air squadrons had commenced bombing in Oahu, the Japanese ambassador to the United States and his colleagues delivered to the Secretary of State a formal reply of a recent American message. While this reply stated that it seemed useless to continue the existing diplomatic negotiations, it contained no threat or hint of war or armed attack. It will be recorded that the distance of Hawaii from Japan makes it obvious that the attack was deliberately planned many days or even weeks ago. During the intervening time, the Japanese government has deliberately sought to deceive the United States by false statements and expressions of hope for continued peace. The attack yesterday on the Hawaiian Islands has caused severe damage to American naval and military forces. I regret to tell you that very many American lives have been lost. In addition, American ships have been reported torpedoed on the high seas between San Francisco and Honolulu. Yesterday, the Japanese government also launched an attack against Malaya. Last night, Japanese forces attacked Hong Kong. Last night, Japanese forces attacked Guam. 
Last night, Japanese forces attacked the Philippine Islands. Last night, the Japanese attacked Wake Island. This morning, the Japanese attacked Midway Island. Japan has, therefore, undertaken a surprise offensive extending throughout the Pacific area. The facts of yesterday speak for themselves. The people of the United States have already formed their opinions and well understand the implications to the very life and safety of our nation. As Commander-in-Chief of the Army and Navy, I have directed that all measures be taken for our defense. Always will we remember the character of the onslaught against us. No matter how long it may take us to overcome this premeditated invasion, the American people and their righteous might will win through to absolute victory. I believe I interpret the will of the Congress and of the people when I assert that we will not only defend ourselves to the uttermost, but will make very certain that this form of treachery shall never endanger us again. Hostilities exist. There is no blinking at the fact that our people, our territory, and our interests are in grave danger. With confidence in our armed forces, with the unbounding determination of our people, we will gain the inevitable triumph. So help us God. I ask that the Congress declare that since the unprovoked and dastardly attack by Japan on September, on Sunday, December 7th, a state of war has existed between the United States and the Japanese Empire. Let's wear that fucking pussy out! Or something like that. He might not have said that last part. That would have been a weird curveball. Uh, Congress would declare war that same day, and here we fucking go. Following day, December 9th, 1941, Roosevelt would broadcast one of his fireside chats, radio broadcasts, where the president, in an intimate yet self-assured tone, updated the American people on the war's progress and reassured them of their costs. These had begun in 1933 as a way to reassure families of recovery from the Great Depression, and in total, Roosevelt would broadcast 30 of these addresses, lasting between 11 and 44 minutes. He probably could have done more, but he was too busy, you know, with his fucking stamp collection. Uh, they keep him high. Uh, these, these speeches keep him high in the public's regard throughout his presidency and revolutionize the way that presidents communicate with average citizens. Now, now, for better or worse, we have Twitter. What a shit show. Oh, man. FDR probably has a few official accounts right now. Probably communicating with the American people all over again. Um, I'm sure Hitler, Hirohito have some official Twitter accounts as well. Uh, December 8th, Roosevelt would describe the attack on Pearl Harbor and Japan's actions in the Pacific. He would be honest about the sacrifices required from all Americans, saying that we are now in this war. We are all in it, all the way. Every single man, woman, and child is a partner in the most tremendous undertaking of American history. We must share together the bad news and the good news, the defeats and the victories, the changing fortunes of war. Unfortunately, he did not talk a lot about, uh, you know, wearing out J uh, Japan's pussy or anything. He didn't, have, he didn't have Churchill swagger, you know, from the fake speeches he didn't write that I talked about last week. Uh, more than anything, he told Americans to strap in, buck the fuck up. It was going to be a long war and a hard one. And they were going to have to rely on the allies and on each other to get through it. He would finish his December 8th fireside chat with, and in the difficult hours of this day, through dark days that may yet be to come, we will know that the vast majority of the members of the human race are on our side. Many of them are fighting with us. All of them are praying for us. For in representing our cause, we represent theirs as well. Our hope and their hope for liberty under God. Got to throw the God part in the end. Uh, so now the question was, uh, how was the U.S. going to fight in this war? Japan's idea was to destroy the U.S. carrier fleet so that the U.S. wouldn't be able to fight in a war that would uh, and would have to navigate for peace. Negotiate, not navigate for peace, sorry. But the U.S. Was, wasn't playing that game. With his battleship fleet crippled in Hawaii, the U.S. Navy turned to two surviving powerful naval assets, aircraft carriers and submarines. Early on the morning of the 10th, December 10th, Japanese forces aboard the 3rd Gunboat Division, part of the uh, Bataan Attack Force, Seized Kamigan, oh my gosh, Kamigan Island 
in the South Philippines. A seaplane bl- uh, base was immediately established on the island by a naval base force, thus providing the Japanese with an air base over only 35 miles north of Apiri. Apiri was, before the war, a fairly large port with a population of 26,500 people. Isolated in the mid-mountain ranges, it was poorly defended with American forces spread very thin. Quickly, the Japanese have a foothold in the Philippines now. They hope to inch their way towards Hawaii. They want to take over an island close enough to the American West Coast with airstrips and refueling stations so they can run successful bombing runs on West Coast cities. And imagine if that shit would have happened. If Seattle and Portland, San Francisco, Los Angeles, San Diego, and more would have been fucking firebombed. Imagine if an amphibious assault would have been launched on the beaches of Malibu or Santa Monica. That's, that's crazy to think about. How that would have affected the war. How that would have affected morale. U.S. civilians at home so shielded from actual combat. Meanwhile, over in Burma on December 11th, Japanese aircraft uh, strike airfields at Tavoy, south of Rangoon. The next day, small units of Japanese troops infiltrate into Burmese borders and engage in skirmishes against British and Burmese troops. A week of air raids over Hong Kong, which was then a British colony, followed by uh, up on December 17th with a visit paid by Japanese envoys to Sir Mark Young, the British governor of Hong Kong. The envoy's message was simple. The British garrison there should simply surrender to the Japanese. Resistance was futile. The envoys were sent home with the following retort. The governor and commander-in-chief of Hong Kong declines absolutely to enter into negotiations for the surrender of Hong Kong. So the Japanese decide to fuck them up. December 18th, Japanese forces land in Hong Kong and slaughter ensues. Uh, The first wave of Japanese troops lands in Hong Kong with artillery, fire for cover, and the following order from their commander, take no prisoners. Upon overrunning a volunteer anti-aircraft battery, the Japanese invaders rope together the captured soldiers and proceed to bayonet them to death. Should have surrendered. Even those who offered no resistance, such as the Royal Medical Corps, led up a hill and massacred. Hundreds of surrendering soldiers are killed. Roughly 10,000 Hong Kong civilians executed. An untold amount of women raped. The Japanese quickly take control over key reservoirs, threaten the British and Chinese inhabitants with a slow death by thirst. The Brits finally surrender full control of Hong Kong December 25th, Christmas Day. The Japanese soldiers celebrate in part by doing a lot more raping. Not even kidding. Uh, They raped at least a dozen nurses at a Hong Kong hospital on Christmas Day to celebrate. I feel like when you listen to the Japanese military for World War II, uh, how good are you at raping? Might have been the very first question you were asked. Meanwhile, back in the U.S., the War Powers Act is passed by Congress on December 25th, authorizing the president to initiate and terminate defense contracts reconfigure government agencies for wartime priorities and regulate the freezing of foreign assets. It was all hands on deck, right? For the U.S. citizenry. This all permitted FDR to, uh, or they also permitted FDR to censor all communications coming in and leaving the country. FDR appointed the executive news director of the Associated Press, Byron Price, as the director of censorship. Scary, but maybe necessary. Maybe not, but maybe. Control the press. What a dangerous game to play. I, you can, you can, uh, it can help you win the war by playing this game, but you can also end up with a country much less free and not worth uh, fighting for by playing that game. Although invested with the awesome power to restrict and withhold news, Price took no extreme measures, allowing news outlets and radio stations to self-censor, which they did. Most top-secret information, including the construction of the atomic bomb, you know, remained just that, top-secret. The most extreme use of the censorship law seems to have been the restriction of the free flow of girly magazines to servicemen including Esquire, which the post office considered obscene for its occasional saucy cartoons and pinup pictures. My God, fucking American puritanical nonsense. I bet the Japanese military uh, brass fucking laughed at that. Like, seriously? They, they won't even let their soldiers see pics of women in swimsuits? 
How, how are they supposed to get riled up enough to rape with, with that restriction? Uh, December 31st, martial law is declared in Singapore. That day, Japanese forces will get within 30 miles of Manila in the Philippines. By that time, the Japanese had landed two divisions, about 30,000 men in Borneo, seven divisions, a total of about 105,000 men in Malaya. And they had over 100,000 men on the island of Luzan. Luzan. Oh boy. Despite FDR's reassurances, the U.S. Army Air Force in the Far East, those American and Filipino soldiers, would quickly be overrun. Despite promises by the commanding U.S. General Douglas MacArthur that thousands of troops, hundreds of planes were being dispatched, no help ever came. January 2nd, the Japanese would take Manila. January 16th, 1942, Japanese battalion occupies Victoria Point at the southern tip of Burma, giving them their first airfield inside the country. Japanese wanted to use the famed Burma Road to cut off a stream of military aid to nationalist China, which would really help Japan conquer them. Furthermore, possession of Burma would place the Japanese at the gate of India, where they believed general insurrection against the British Raj would be ignited once the troops had established themselves in Assam within reach of Calcutta. How do they think that would have happened? Seems like the British were way less rapey than the Japanese. Uh, now they put their plans into motion. The next Burmese city, Tavoy, would fall on January 19th. This gave uh, the Japanese control of three airfields, allowed them to launch the first air raids of Rangoon. These first air raids ended with a rare Allied victory as the radar-assisted fighter squadrons based around Rangoon inflicted heavy losses on the Japanese, forcing them to abandon daylight raids until the radar was lost. Uh, Jap uh, January 30th, 1942, the Japanese would be within 18 miles of Singapore. February 15th, Singapore would fall. It had already pretty much been bombed to shit. An estimated 100,000 people in Singapore were taken prisoner some 9,000 of whom would, be, would go on to die building the Burma-Thailand Burma -Thailand Railway. The estimated deaths of these under Japanese control in Singapore, these people range from a Japanese estimate of 5,000 to that of China, a Chinese estimate of 50,000. Whatever the exact figure, undeniable that thousands lost their lives under Jap Japanese occupation there. During the fighting and immediately afterwards, uh, civilians were murdered, enemy soldiers decapitated, prisoners burnt alive, hospital patients slaughtered where they lay, Patients were bayoneted in their beds where they lay prone. One poor fellow, uh, even uh, on the operating table where he lay anesthetized, got killed. All medics and orderlies rounded up, forced into outhouse sheds overnight, and then the next day they were bayoneted or shot. The savagery truly shocking to the British colonial troops, especially those who, until this battle, had never been in action. Uh, guess what also happened? I bet you can guess. Yeah, yeah. Fuckload of villagers are raped. Uh, February 19th, 1942, Japan attacks Indonesia. And Darwin, Australia is raided for the first time. Japanese air raids in Australia would continue through March. Also on February 19th, 1942, FDR issues Executive Order 9066 based on a report by Lieutenant General John DeWitt. DeWitt, leader of the Western Defense Command, believed that the civilian population needed to be taken control of to prevent a repeat of Pearl Harbor. As in, let's imprison thousands of innocent Japanese Americans for years and destroy their lives just in case they might want to help Imperial Japan sometime. To argue his case, DeWitt prepared a report filed with known falsehoods, such as examples of Japanese Americans sabotaging electrical grids here in the States, when the real culprit, as later revealed, was uh, cattle damaging power lines. Uh, Dickhead DeWitt suggested the creation of the military zones and Japanese detainment to Secretary of War Henry Stimson and Attorney General Francis Biddle. His original plan included Italians and Germans, though the idea of rounding up Americans of European descent frowned on, not as popular. There were a lot more of them, and, you know, they were white. Uh, at congressional hearings in February of 1942, a majority of the testimonies, including those from California Governor Colbert, 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 yeah, L. Olson, and State Attorney General Earl Warren 
declared that all Japanese should be removed. Attorney General Biddle pleaded with the president that mass incarceration of citizens was not necessary, preferring smaller, more targeted security measures. Regardless, Roosevelt signed the order. The order authorized the evacuation of all persons deemed a threat to national security from the West Coast to relocation centers further inland. How fucked up. If they would have also done that to the German and Italian Americans, it'd still be fucked up, but at least you could argue that it wasn't blatantly racist. Cannot argue that now. Uh, military zones created in California, Washington, and Oregon, states with a large population of Japanese Americans. Roosevelt's executive order forcibly removed Americans of Japanese ancestry from their homes. Executive order 9066 affected the lives of roughly 120,000 people, the majority of whom were American citizens. Over the next six months, men, women, children of Japanese ancestry are rounded up. Canada soon follows suit, forcibly removing 21,000 of its residents of Japanese descent from the West Coast. Mexico enacts its own version, relocates about 5,000 Japanese citizens. Uh, And eventually, 2,264 more people of Japanese descent forcibly removed from Peru, Brazil, uh, Chile, and Argentina. Uh, Army-directed removals of Americans of Japanese descent began on March 24th. People had six days' notice to dispose of their belongings other than what they could carry. Holy shit. Anyone who was at least one-sixteenth Japanese was evacuated, including 17,000 children under the age of 10, as well as several thousand elderly and disabled residents. My God, if you had one great-great-grandparent from Japan, you could be put into a camp. This is so fucking dumb. Just embarrassingly stupid. I have a great-grandpa, born and raised in Sweden. If Sweden ever attacks the U.S., A, it's probably not going to work out very well for Sweden. B, I have zero association with Sweden. And not even because I don't want to. I have nothing against Sweden. I just don't happen to know any of my family members there. Not a single one. How many people who were interned in these camps literally didn't know fucking anyone in Japan? I'm guessing a lot. Japanese Americans reported to assembly centers near their homes. Uh, From there, they were transported to a relocation center where they might live for months before being transferred to a permanent wartime residence, an internment camp. Assembly centers were located in remote areas, often reconfigured uh, fairgrounds and racetracks featuring buildings not meant for human habitation, like horse stalls or cow sheds. That's a fun description of a place to to live. Here's your cow shed. Get in there. Uh, In Portland, Oregon, 3,000 people stayed in the livestock pavilion of the Pacific International Livestock Exposition Facilities. The Santa Anita Assembly Center, just several miles northeast of Los Angeles, was a de facto city with 18,000 incarcerated 8,500 of whom lived in stables, food shortages, and substandard sanitation prevalent in these facilities. There were a total of 10 prison camps. Typically, the camps included some form of barracks with communal eating areas. Several families were housed together. Residents who were labeled as dissidents were forced into a special prison camp in Tool Lake, California. Each relocation center uh, was its own town. It included schools, post offices, and work facilities, as well as farmland for growing food and keeping livestock. Each prison camp town was completely surrounded by barbed wire and guard towers. Uh, to, ri- to flee would be to risk being shot. Uh, assembly centers often worked to prisoners with the policy that they should not be paid more than an army private. Jobs ranged from doctors to teachers to laborers and mechanics. A couple uh, were the sites of camouflage net factories, which provided work. Over a thousand incarcerated Japanese Americans were sent to other states to do seasonal farm work. Over 4,000 of the incarcerated population allowed to leave to attend college. But as lax as some of this might sound, life of these internment camps was brutal. Or at least, you know, could be very often. The following July, during a night march, two Japanese Americans, Toshio Kobata and Hiroto Isomura, Isomura, were shot and killed by a sentry who claimed they were attempting to escape. 
Japanese Americans later testified that these were two elderly men who were disabled and had been struggling during the march to Lordsburg. Sentry found not guilty by the Army Court Martial Board. Next month, a riot breaks out in the Santa Anita Assembly Center, the result of anger over insufficient rations and overcrowding. At California's Manzanar War Relocation Center, tensions resulted in the beating of Fred Tayama, a Japanese-American Citizens League leader by six men. JACL members were believed to be supporters of the prison camp's administration. Fearing a riot, police tear-gassed crowds that had gathered at the police station to demand the release of Harry Unio. Or, or, or Yuno. Yuno had been arrested for allegedly assaulting Tayama. Uh, James Ito was killed instantly. Several others wounded. Amongst those injured was Jim Kanagawa, 21, who died of complications five days later. Uh, one more thing about these camps. Uh, the businesses and the homes these people owned when they were interred, almost always lost. The jobs they held, gone. Right, But hey, the U.S. government eventually would make things right. The Civil Liberties Act of 1988, signed into law by President Reagan, gave each remaining internment camp survivor a whopping, brace yourselves, $20,000. Even Stephen! Hey, sorry we falsely imprisoned you and your family for four fucking years and you lost your home and your business. Uh, but don't worry, 43 years from now, if you're still alive, you'll probably get $20,000. That is so outrageously gross. And sadly, I bet my life that millions of Americans uh, uh, would have been all for tossing Iraqi or Syrian Americans or Afghani Americans into the same kind of internment camps with the same policies just a couple years ago. Drastic times call for drastic measures. I get that. I really do. But they don't call for blatantly dumb fuck measures. Let's circle back now to the spring of 1942. The majority of the remaining troops, the U.S. Army Air Force in the Far East, were suffering from disease and starvation when they surrendered on April 9th, 1942. The Philippines had officially fallen to the Japanese. And I realized I didn't have to say that day twice. Uh, the soldiers were now forced to walk to the prison camp some 65 miles away under extreme tropical conditions with no provisions for food, water, shelter, or medicine. Those who could no longer uh, go on would be beaten, bayoneted, shot, even beheaded for sport by their Japanese captors. And some of them also eaten. Uh, thousands died in what would become known as the Bataan Death March. An estimated 5,500 to 18,650 American and Filipino POWs died. In one case, a group of 350 soldiers who had just surrendered were all herded over to a river and massacred. Despite the agony of defeat, the soldiers did delay the Japanese Army's 50-day timetable by holding on to the Bataan Peninsula for 99 days. The Bataan Death March was one of the first of many atrocities the Japanese would commit in the Philippines. Although Japan granted the Philippines its, quote, independence in 1943 as part of the Greater East Asian Co-Prosperity sphere program now the filipinos suffered greatly at the hands of the japanese from many atrocities uh, inflicted not only on suspected guerrillas but on many innocent civilians torture rape pillaging massacres sometimes massacres of entire villages took place all over the country later leading up to and during the battle of manila from february to march 1945 when the u.s drove out the japanese the japanese would murder over a hundred thousand filipino civilians and it seemed mostly just for fucking sport just to amuse themselves so much fucking rape. Japanese officers uh, designated Manila's Bayview Hotel uh, to be a literal rape center in this time period. According to testimony at a later war crimes trial, 400 women and girls were rounded up from Manila's wealthy Ormida district, taken to this hotel, submitted to a selection board. They had a fucking board put together, totally based on who they wanted to rape. And they picked out the 25 uh, women they considered the most beautiful. The rest are killed. The selected women and girls, many of them between 12 and 14 years old, forced into hotel rooms where Japanese enlisted men and officers took turns raping them. 
and sometimes much worse. There are numerous accounts of soldiers doing shit. This is going to get even more brutal than the stuff we've talked about before. Doing shit like literally slicing women's breasts off as the women are dying, you know, holding them on their own chest and just kind of laughing, like just fucking ripper crew stuff. Uh, Dousing women in gasoline and burning them alive after raping them. That exact sequence was apparently a thing. Uh, what what do they say about one's character, right? The true test of character is what you do when no one's watching. I think a better phrase might be uh, the true test of one's character is what you're willing to do if you know you can get away with it. A lot of heroism in World War II. A lot of other soldiers revealed themselves to be fucking evil pieces of shit. It seems like just like the Nazis dehumanized Jewish people, the Japanese pretty much dehumanized everyone but the Japanese. April 18th, 1942, U.S. General Douglas MacArthur assumes command of the Southwest Pacific area. A larger-than-life controversial figure, uh, MacArthur was talented, outspoken, and got to, you know, point this out in the U.S. too, not just the Japanese. He was also known to constantly rape his subordinate officers. Daily. World War II was mostly about rape, you guys. MacArthur would rape the officers beneath him. They would go on to rape other officers beneath them. Those guys would then rape some sailors and stuff. Then those guys would rape some villagers. Then those villagers would rape their pets. Then those pets would rape, I don't know, babies and stuff. And then those babies would rape General MacArthur and the cycle would repeat. <laughs> Sorry, I had, to, <laughs> I had to take it that far. I had to make it absurd to shake off some of the fucking horror of what I've been talking about. I've read about so many other completely evil atrocities I won't even share with you. I saw a stupid amount of photos this week of dead women and children whilst reading articles on World War II atrocities. I feel like I was going crazy for a second there. Uh, cocky is what I should, should have said earlier about MacArthur. In the eyes of many, MacArthur was seen as being super egotistical and cocky. He graduated from the U.S. Military Academy at West Point in 1903, helped lead the 42nd Division in France during World War I, where he committed numerous acts of valor, like leading a reconnaissance patrol of soldiers into no man's land between allied and enemy trenches one night to confirm a gap in the enemy's defenses and then being the only man to return alive with the necessary information. After World War I, where he was awarded two Distinguished Service Crosses, four Silver Stars, nominated for the Medal of Honor, etc., etc., he went on to serve as a superintendent of West Point, chief of staff of the Army, and field marshal of the Philippines, where he helped organize a local military presence. Homeboy would earn over 100 military decorations from the U.S. and other countries, including the Medal of Honor. Uh, often described by fellow officers as one of the bravest men that ever met, uh, he would return to liberate the Philippines in 1944. Before then, many campaigns would lie ahead. One of them would be the Battle of the Coral Sea. The Battle of the Coral Sea was the first time the U.S. Navy fleet saw major action against Japan. The U.S. having broken Japan's secret war code and been forewarned of the impending invasion of Tulagi and Port Moresby, or Tulagi, excuse me, attempted to intercept the Japanese armada. Four days of intense battle between Japanese and American aircraft carriers resulted in 70 Japanese and 66 American warplanes destroyed. This marked the first air-naval battle in history, as none of the carriers fired at each other directly, allowing their planes to take off from the decks to do the battling. Among other casualties was the American carrier Lexington, the Blue Ghost, so-called because it was not camouflaged like other carriers. She suffered extensive aerial damage and was scuttled by destroyer torpedoes. 216 Lexington crewmen died as a result of the Japanese aerial bombardment. Although Japan would go on to occupy all the Solomon Islands, they paid a high price to do so. The loss of experienced pilots uh, was so great, and ships as well, they lost a destroyer, three minesweepers, a light carrier, and numerous other ships suffered extensive damage. The Japan led uh, had to cancel its expedition to Port Moresby, as well as other South Pacific targets. But pretty soon, after more code breaking, uh, the U.S. learns of Japan's next plan. 
The U.S. was aware that the Japanese were planning an attack in the Pacific on a location the Japanese codenamed AF uh, because Navy crypto or cryptanalysts had begun breaking Japanese communication codes in early 1942. The attack location and time were confirmed when the American base at Midway sent out a false message that it was short of fresh water. Japan then sent out a message that AF was short on fresh water, confirming the location that the, of the attack was the base on Midway. Early in the morning of June 4th, aircraft from four Japanese aircraft carriers attacked and severely damaged the U.S. base on Midway. Unbeknownst to the Japanese, U.S. carrier forces were hiding just to the east of the island and ready for battle. After the initial attacks, the Japanese aircraft headed back to the carriers to rearm and refuel. While the aircraft were returning, the Japanese Navy became aware of the presence of U.S. naval forces in the area. Douglas, TBD Devastator Torpedo Bombers, and Douglas SBD Dauntless Dive Bombers from the USS Enterprise, USS Hornet, and USS Yorktown attacked the Japanese fleet. The Japanese carriers Akagi, Kaga, and Soryu are hit, set ablaze, and abandoned. Harayu, the only surviving Japanese carrier, responds with two waves of attacks, both times bombing the USS Yorktown, leaving it severely damaged but still afloat. But then on the afternoon of June 4th, the USS Yorktown scout plane locates the Harayu, and the Enterprise sends dive bombers to attack it. And that attack leaves the Harayu burning and without the ability to launch aircraft before it finally sinks. Fucking huge victory for the U.S. Over the next two days, U.S. troops at sea and on Midway continue their attacks, forcing the Japanese to abandon the battle and retreat. Battle of Midway. Big, big win. Big, uh, major turning point in the war for the U.S. Uh, Japan lost approximately 3,057 men, four aircraft carriers, one cruiser, hundreds of aircraft, while the U.S. lost approximately 362 men, one carrier, one destroyer, and 144 aircraft. Critical U.S. victory, uh, critical U.S. victory. Excuse me, stopping Japan's relentless growth in the Pacific and putting the U.S. in a position to begin shrinking an empire that had been growing for decades. And this battle might not have been won if not for the decision of one dude, Lieutenant Commander C. Wade McCluskey, to go rogue against orders. I love little moments like this. Had this guy followed orders, they might have lost this battle, which could have been a turning point in favor of the Japanese, which could have, I mean, honestly, led to the U.S. losing the war in the U.S. Pacific. There's just so many little pivotal moments where someone steps up and does something incredible that decides the fate of, you know, possibly thousands, millions of people's lives. During the Battle of Midway, while leading to his air group's 32 scout bombers, on June 4th, he makes a, the critical tactical decision that leads to the sinking of two of, the Japan, or two of the Japanese fleet's carriers, Kaga and Akagi. When McCluskey couldn't find the Japanese carriers where he'd expected them, with his air group's fuel running dangerously low, Instead of pressing on towards the coordinates he had been given as ordered, he decides to switch flight paths based on little more than gut instinct and follows a course that, you know, might not allow his group's bombers to be able to refuel in territory that wasn't at least partially occupied by the Japanese. Very risky. He begins a box search and on the second leg spots the Japanese destroyer uh, Arashi. Shimaiz that Arashi must be following the main fleet. McCluskey orders a change in his course in the same direction as Arashi. This leads him uh, directly to the sought-after enemy carriers. McCluskey gives the orders to attack, which results in confusion, with both squadrons of 31 aircraft diving on the closer carrier Kaga. Doctrine calls for McCluskey's forward squadron to attack the more distant carrier Akagi and the squadron behind his to attack Kaga. Two simultaneous carrier attacks uh, would have made it harder for Japanese Zeros to respond. Lieutenant Richard Best. Finally get a good dick in this suck. Dick Best, the fucking best dick who commanded the other squadron and was considered to be its best pilot. Of course he was. Best dick. Always the alpha. Uh, notices the error, pulls out with the with two wingmen to attack Akagi with Best scoring a direct hit. The other 28 dive bombers, some of which nearly collided with one another. This is so dramatic, all this happening so fast, score at least four hits on Kaga, leaving it a burning wreck. 
As he pulls out of his dive, McCluskey's plane is pronounced is pounced on, excuse me, by two zeros, which put 52 holes in his plane and a bullet through his shoulder. After his gunner shoots down one of the zeros, McCluskey able to land his plane safely on Enterprise, despite being fucking shot up, right? Despite partially shot up controls. He pulls a fucking top gun. He pulls a Tom Cruise. Uh, within minutes, three of the four Japanese carriers have been turned into burning hulks and the Battle of Midway turned into an overwhelming victory for the Allies, leaving them the dominant naval power in the Pacific. Hail Nimrod. The U.S. entered this battle, losing the Pacific War. A crucial 30 minutes later, they're winning it. Soon after, the first major land confrontation takes place. After the U.S. strategic victories at the battles of the Coral Sea and Midway, the Japanese Imperial Navy is no longer capable of major offensive campaigns, which permits the Allies to start their own offensive in the Pacific. Time for some island hopping. In August 1942, America mounts its first major amphibious landing of World War II at Guadalcanal, using innovative landing craft recently built by Higgins Industries out of NOLA, Norlands. Uh, American forces first land on the Solomon Islands of Guadalcanal, Tulagi in Florida on the morning of August 7th, 1942. Not our Florida. This one does not have any sketchy white dudes on basalts. Does have. A lot of sketchy fight to the death rapey Japanese dudes though. After some fierce fighting, the U.S. Marines clear Tulagi in Florida by August 9th. Almost immediately, however, Japanese naval aircraft attack transport and escort ships and Japanese reinforcements arrive via uh, or in the, in the area. Excuse me. Over the following days, the first of many deadly naval bat- battles occurs. The Naval Battle of Savo Island, uh, described by some as the U.S. Navy's worst defeat, is one of them. In this opening battle, fought over two days, the Allies, primarily the U.S., lose over 1,000 men and four heavy cruisers. Japanese only lose 58 men, no ships sunk. Luckily, not all the fighting around the island of Guadalcanal goes down like this. The fight for control of Guadalcanal, its critical airfield, and the seas around them will continue for six months, with both sides losing men, ships, and aircraft, neither side able to drive the other off the island. During the first amphibious invasion in the Pacific, the U.S. makes many initial mistakes, including not having the proper resources on the beaches to move men and material inland. The logistical challenges of transport and supply across the Pacific also immense. Difficult jungle terrain, inhospitable weather, lack of infrastructure, and a foe fighting to the death gives the U.S. its first taste of what is going to come throughout the Pacific War. It seemed that every time the U.S. inched closer to victory, the Japanese would resupply Guadalcanal by night to be ready for more fighting the next day. Finally, the U.S. forces will prevail for all real intents and purposes in October of 1942. When the Japanese 17th Army launches an assault on October 23rd, striking at multiple points along the airfield perimeter over four days, tenacious fighting by U.S. Marines and soldiers throws back the attacks. American losses are significant, but Japanese losses devastating. Over 7,000 U.S. Marines and other military personnel die in in the Guadalcanal campaign. The Japanese lose almost 20,000. Each side loses over 600 aircraft. U.S. loses 29 ships. Japan loses 38. The battle at sea also heats up in the fall of 1942. On October 26, American and Japanese naval forces clash off of Santa Cruz Islands. Japan secures a tactical victory, sinking the U.S. carrier Hornet, but pays a severe price in aircraft and skilled aircrew, losing 99 planes, 500 pilots and soldiers. Then from November 12th to the 15th, the frantic naval battle of Guadalcanal, American soldiers and airmen blocked Japan's last effort to knock out Henderson Field from the sea at heavy cost. Each side loses over 1,500 men, dozens of aircraft, numerous ships. The U.S. ultimately wins the battle, but the Japanese won't withdraw their final men and leave the island to the Allies until February of 1943. A few weeks later, very important war development goes unnoticed by everyone but a handful of U.S. government and military officials and top secret clearance back in America. From December 2nd, 1942, or excuse me, on December 2nd, 1942, 
Professor Enrico Fermi sets up an atomic reactor in Chicago. Just one event within the scope of the Manhattan Project, one event amongst many. The U.S. efforts at making an atomic bomb and a former suck subject is the Manhattan Project. This first atomic reactor would be set up in a squash court under the stands of Stagg Field at the University of Chicago. The reactor itself, codenamed Chicago Pile 1, or CP1 for short, a 20-foot-tall pile of graphite blocks studded with hundreds of smaller blocks of uranium. Something that most people just see is a fucking pile of blocks. Someone like me would be like, what's with this pile of blocks? Others like, no, that's so much more than a pile of blocks. That's, a, that's an experiment. At 3.53 p.m., the group of 49 scientists recorded that a self-sustaining nuclear chain reaction was achieved for the first time ever. It took 28 minutes. First step of something massive. In order to build an atomic bomb, the Manhattan Project first needed to prove that a chain reaction would actually work the way they thought it would, and it did. Military strategists now know that an atomic bomb is truly possible to develop and quickly, and research on it will be moved to Los Alamos, New Mexico. Back in the Pacific, there are more Allied victories, 1943. January 22nd, Australian and U.S. forces defeat Japan in the Papua campaign. The Allies captured Buna on the northern coast of the Papuan Peninsula. Throughout 1943, as well into 1944, the Allied forces continued to fight along the rugged coastline of Papua and New Guinea to a multitude of other islands. More than 200,000 Japanese would lose their lives in the New Guinea campaign, and it would last until 1945. Over 7,000 Australians, over 4,500 Americans will also die. January 29th, 1943, Japan begins withdrawing land forces from Guadalcanal, paving the way for a full Allied victory there. August 15th, 1943, U.S. troops landed Vela Lavella in the Solomon Islands. The Battle of Vela Lavella, later fought on October 6th, will be the last significant naval victory for the Japanese of the war. They'll damage two U.S. destroyers, sink a third, and then the U.S. will push them out of the Solomon Islands afterwards. Now that the Japanese are facing defeat on Guadalcanal, their new strategy is defensive. Defend each of their island bases fiercely, try to wear the Americans down while the next base gets reinforced. They're hoping they can inflict enough losses as they kind of back, you know, back down one island to the next. They're hoping they can inflict enough loss on the Americans to destroy our morale, weaken our military enough that they'll then be able to go on the offensive once more. But the strategy will not work. Some historians think that what what was really hurting the Japanese on these island battles was a low population base of locals. There were less than 10,000 islanders living in the Solomon Islands back then. Not enough people for the Japanese soldiers to rape to keep the morale up. Think of a video game where you have to find uh, like a food source to power up your character's health bar. No food, your character slowly starves. Now replace food with raping. Lonely Japanese soldiers' power bars were dwindling down to dangerously low levels in those jungles. No historians think that. My (laughs) My brain is just permanently warped. Thanks to so much shit I read about these fucking Japanese soldiers' horrific sexual behaviors in World War II. Uh, Though the Allies, British and Australian troops, fought with the Americans, will lose approximately 10,600 men. Around 86,000 Japanese will die. And while Allied forces will lose roughly 800 aircraft, the Japanese will lose approximately 1,500. Allied successes in the Solomon Islands campaign prevents the Japanese from cutting Australia and New Zealand off from the U.S. Fighting continues all the way until August of 1945. Uh, The U.S. Central Pacific Campaign begins with the Gilbert Islands. South of the Mandated Islands, U.S. forces conquered the Gilberts in November of 1943. Next on the agenda was Operation Flintlock, a plan to capture the Marshall Islands. So many islands! January of 1940, the U.S. invades the Marshall Islands. Man, all these fucking islands surrounded by thousands of miles of open sea in some cases. Just such unique terrain to fight. The Marshalls east of the Caroline Islands and the West Pacific Ocean had been in Japanese hands since World War I. Occupied by the Japanese in 1914, they were made part of the Japanese-mandated islands as determined by the League of Nations. 
and now the U.S. taking them fucking away from them. The more islands they could take, the closer they could get to Japan, right? Their goal, similar to the Japanese. They want to get uh, bases close enough to mainland, you know, Japan, if you will, the main islands, to be able to run successful bombing campaigns against them. Admiral Raymond Spruance led the 5th Fleet from Pearl Harbor on January 26, 1944 to the Marshals with a goal of getting 53,000 assault troops ashore at Roy Amur. Meanwhile, using the Gilberts as an airbase, American planes bombed the Japanese Administrative and Communications Center for the Marshals, which was located on Kwajalein, an atoll that was part of the Marshall Center or Marshall Cluster of atolls, islets, islets, I didn't look up that word either, and reefs. Uh, by January 31st, Kwa Jelaine, that's a tough one, was devastated. It doesn't look like it should be pronounced that way. A repeated carrier and land-based air raids had destroyed every single Japanese airplane on the Marshalls. By February 3rd, U.S. infantry overran Roy Namur. The Marshalls were then effectively in American hands with a loss of 400 American lives. Small number compared to previous battles. Almost 8,000 Japanese soldiers were killed. February 29th, 1944, U.S. General Douglas MacArthur's forces invade Admiralty Island. The Admiralty Islands, uh group consists of 160 small islands. So sorry, I should have said islands that first time. So many places I'd never fucking heard of before this, by the way. Uh, the chief of which are Manus and Los Negros, located 200 miles northeast of mainland New Guinea and approximately 360 miles west of the township of Rabal. The two main islands were also home to an important airfield and harbor, the latter of which was the largest in the region. When the report came back to MacArthur that the Los Negros might be deserted, he knew it was time to strike. But he knew that it would be a gamble. What if it, was ac- what if it wasn't actually deserted? What if he was leading soldiers into a trap? MacArthur decided to take the risk, and on February 29th, U.S. forces go to work. All doubts as to the presence of the Japanese were dispelled when shore batteries began exchanging fire with American warships. The first wave of troops proceeded to take the beach at 7.55 a.m. local time, and at 8.14 a.m., the order was given to cease the bombardment as landing craft arrived at their destinations. APDs lowered LCPRs, landing craft personnel ramped, uh, each holding 37 men, and the soldiers stepped onto the beach at approximately 8.17 a.m. Troops continued to be ferried ashore over the next four hours. A heavy rain set in, which fortunately for the Americans reduced their visibility in the eyes of Japanese defenders. The Allied soldiers eventually broke out from the beach, overran the nearby airstrip. The following day, a second wave of follow-up forces arrived in addition to three tons of supplies dropped by the aircraft of the 375th Troop Carrier Group. So much coordination involved in all this. On land, the fight for Los Negros would continue through the rest of the month. In the end, the gamble paid off, and the Allies were one step closer to checking Japanese aggression. Now it's on to uh, the next island, Guam. The U.S. acquired Guam and the Philippines from Spain in 1898, following the Spanish-American War. But Guam had been captured by the Japanese in 1941, right? Days after Pearl Harbor. Now it's time to take it back. The invasion of Guam would be part of a larger island campaign known as Operation Forager, which included Guam and the rest of the Marinera Islands, as well as the uh, Palau Island Group. The invasion of the 212-square-mile island of Guam made by Marines from the 3rd Marine Amphibious Corps, supported by naval air landing craft and naval gunfire and airstrikes. The Army's 77th Infantry Division, yeah, also conducted a landing and participated in the battle. Coast Guard cutters also participated in the battle, making it a truly joint operation with every military service present. Excuse me, around 59,000 U.S. service members and a large number of native Chamaros Faced around 18,000 Japanese, fighting in the thick jungle, steep terrain, difficult for both sides, with about 3,000 U.S. troops killed and more than 18,000 Japanese dead when it was over. Although organized Japanese resistance ended on August 10th, some 7,500 Japanese soldiers remained hiding in the jungle for a long-ass time, and some continued to fight. 
the last of the Japanese soldiers, Sochi Yokoi, not discovered. Ah, I'm so glad I came across this until January 24th, 1972. You heard right. Not discovered until 1972. No one told homeboy <laughs> the war was over. So, ah, fuck it, this is a crazy ass story. Dude still thought that World War II might still be happening when the U.S. was about a year away from withdrawing from Vietnam. This is fucking ridiculous. After American forces capture the island, Sergeant Yukoi goes into hiding with nine other Japanese soldiers. They spread out. Seven of the original 10 soon move away. Probably, you know, one out of the jungle and realize that the war is over. And, but three remain in the region. These fucking three are just hiding. These three separate. <laughs> they visit each other sporadically until 1964. And then the other two die in a flood. And then for the last eight years, Yokoi lives completely alone, still hiding. Dude spent almost 30 fucking years hiding in the jungle. He survived by hunting, primarily at night. He's became a creature of the jungle. He used native plants to make clothes, bedding, and storage implements. And then he hid in a, in a tiny cave. Oh my God, he was like a Japanese Tom Hanks in Castaway. But except for being alone for four years, he's basically alone for 28 years. He returned to Japan in 1972, where he went on to become one of the founders of Nintendo. Dude died almost a billionaire. Yeah, right. No, he didn't fucking do that. No, he, uh, he returned after being... <laughs> He returned to Japan and was quickly crowned world all-time hide-and-seek champion. <laughs> and then he entered a televised hide-and-seek tournament in 1973. And he hasn't been seen since. No, come on. No, he did make it back to Japan. And he got a little place out in the sticks. Of course he did. And he wrote a book on simple living. Also not surprised. Surprisingly, he did get married. And he lived until the age of 82. God, I bet that guy did a lot of fucking in his 60s and 70s. Making it for a lot of lost time. Right, making up for three decades of beating off in a cave. It's nothing but memories. Maybe the occasional, I don't know, sexy looking water buffalo or something. Anyway, a few months following Guam's liberation. I just had, had to take that detour for a little comic relief. Unbelievable. Uh, Navy Admiral Chester Nimitz, commander-in-chief of Pacific Ocean Areas, established the island as his headquarters for the remainder of the war. <laughs> had no idea there was a little fucking one dude hiding out there near him. The strategic location of Guam and the rest of the Mariner Islands allowed American land-based bomber crews for the first time to make round-trip strikes directly at the Japanese home islands now. Fuck yeah, bro. Bringing it home to the Japanese. Now it's time for the U.S. to take back the Philippines. December 12th, Brigadier General William Dunkel and his troops sailed for Mindoro, the seventh largest and eighth most populous island in the Philippines, under the protection of the Seventh Fleet. The landing took place on December 15th. The landing was unopposed. Japan not expecting them. Carrier-borne aircraft circle above uh, the also nearly unchallenged, but or excuse me, carrier-borne aircraft circled above also nearly unchallenged. But many kamikaze aircraft slipped through and caused considerable damage, including sinking two landing craft. Uh, though in the grand scheme of the invasion, the sacrifice achieved little. By December 28th, two fighter bases were ready for the Luzon invasion scheduled for January 9th. With Mindoro lost, Japan also lost uh, use of Manila as a central transfer station of naval transports. With Mindoro secured, American forces now just south of Luzon. Like Luzon, Luzon. I keep wanting to say Luzon. Sorry, Luzon. While MacArthur's intention was to make his main landing assault, the city of Lingguyen in northern Luzon, elaborate attempts at deception were made in the south. He had his aircraft unceasingly make reconnaissance flights and bombing missions in southern Luzon. Or Luzon. Jesus. Ah, my brain doesn't want... Luzon, 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 Luzon. Uh, transport aircraft make many pair drops with dummies, but while minesweepers clear the base. 
Filipino resistance fighters in southern Luzon, too, were called to conduct major sabotage operations. All the effort was to provide a false notion that the American landing was to take place at southern Luzon, Luzon, instead of Ling... Oh my God, my brain is shutting down. Ling-ga-yen. Ling-ga-yen. The opening amphibious operation at Luzon. How many fucking times do I have to say that word? Unopposed by the... I should have cut it out of the script. Unopposed by the Japanese, except for airstrikes. Landed more men than the first wave of the Normandy landing. 175,000 were ashore within the first few days, securing a beach at 20 miles wide. Vice Admiral Shingiru Fukudomi noted after the war that he had no advance information of American movement against Lingyen until the fleet actually departed. When all of MacArthur's first phase landers set foot on Luzon, uh, he had 280,000 men at his disposal. That was more than the number Eisenhower had in campaigns for North Africa, Italy, or Southern France. Special attack units, again, pose a threat for the landing forces. A U.S. escort carrier was lost when a kamikaze aircraft dove through its wooden flight deck. Two dozen other warships damaged by similar suicide attacks. One destroyer is sunk. As the campaign stretches on, Rear Admiral Ollendorf would lose more than 20 vessels from kamikaze t- uh, strikes. Man, fucking kamikaze. Japanese pilots gleefully killing themselves to help with Imperial Japan's war effort, dying what they saw as extremely noble deaths, sacrificing themselves to protect their loved ones back home from the barbaric Americans. Uh, General Yamashita led the defending Japanese troops in fighting valiantly against the advancing U.S. Army. Though wielding a larger force, he could do little to stop the American advance without air power. He decided to take part of his troops, uh, he decided to take part of his troops into the island's interior and attempt to draw the campaign out as long as possible. It was uh, do some jungle fighting. Clark Field would be captured by U.S. forces January 23rd, reclaiming the airfield that saw the destruction of part of the U.S. Air Force helplessly on the ground. Uh, on January 31st, MacArthur visits the U.S. 1st Cavalry Division and gives Major General Mudge an order, go to Manila. February 3rd, the 1st Cavalry Division does just that. 20,000 Japanese troops are fortified in the city, slowly falling back towards a fortress-like district built by the Spanish colonial government from a former era. Although the Americans were under orders to advance without causing too much destruction in the city, influenced by MacArthur's liking for the city, uh, city still suffered dearly from American artillery and air attacks during the month-long urban fighting. An estimated 1,000 Filipinos killed from American tank and artillery fire. However, much greater part of the damage, both material as well as in human lives, caused by the Japanese. After Yashimita left Manila, Vice Admiral Vice Admiral uh, Yokochi went fucking buck wild. With the division equivalent of mostly naval personnel, Okochi and his men engaged in a horrendous pillaging act. Hospitals set a fire with patients tied to their beds. Right? We talked about some of this earlier. Women of all ages raped and murdered. Absurdly horrific shit carried out. Uh, one example, I'm not making this up. Babies fucking eyeballs gouged out, smeared on walls in a hospital. Like, what the fuck? Uh, more of the horror of the Battle of Manila I mentioned earlier. Over 100,000 Filipinos will be murdered mercilessly in Manila and all around Luzon in the or Luzon in the last days of Japanese control. With the battle tactics in the hands of MacArthur's field commanders, the general decides to visit some U.S. POWs, recently liberated now. Some of the prisoners were his old baton troops. He's surrounded now by thousands of his former soldiers, and he would later recall, they remained silent, as though at inspection. I looked down the lines of men bearded and soiled, with ripped and soiled shirts and trousers, with toes sticking out such shoes as remained, with suffering and torture written on their gaunt faces. Here was all that was left of the men of Baton and Corregidor. As I passed slowly down the scrawny suffering column, a whisper said, you're back, or you made it. I could only reply, I'm a little late, but we finally came. 
Man, what an intense life moment. To see these men he led who'd been brutalized for years by the Japanese, now they'd been saved. Man, how emotional. February 25th, MacArthur marches into his former residence where his wife, Jean, and son, Arthur, witnessed 132 Japanese aircraft ravaging a nearby American base from the balcony over three years earlier. February 27th, Manila is considered safe for the return of the Philippine gov- uh, Philippines government. The city is finally declared totally secure March 3rd, 1945. By this time, Manila was nearly a pile of rubble. In World War II, only Warsaw, Poland experienced greater damage than Manila. 70% of the utilities, 75% of their factories, 80% of the Southern Residential District, and the entire business uh, district all destroyed. Backing up a little bit now to November 5th, 1944. On this day, Allied planes bombed Singapore. It will be the beginning of a campaign that will last for months until March of 1945. Most of these raids target the island's naval base and dockyard facilities, and mine lane missions are conducted in nearby waters. The raids have mixed results. While significant damage was inflicted on Singapore's important naval base and commercial port, some raids on these targets were not successful and other attacks on oil storage facilities on islands near Singapore are ineffective. The mine lane campaign disrupted Japanese shipping to the Singapore area and resulted in the loss of three vessels and damage to a further 10, but not a decisive victory. Uh, but Allied air attacks more successful in raising the morale of Singapore's civilian population who believe the raids marked the their impending liberation, and they were right. The first of a long-range bombing raid on the Japanese home islands takes place as early as November 28th, 1944, mainly from the newly constructed airfields in the Marinara Islands. Back in January 1945, American General Curtis LeMay had taken over the 20th and 21st Bomber Commands, taking on the task of bombing Japanese naval and air bases from high altitude, though these attacks would do little. So we got creative. Even before ground operations to secure the Marinara Islands of Guam, Saipan, and Tinian ended, U.S. Naval Construction Battalions were already clearing land for air bases suitable for their new B-29 super fortresses. These new and massive bombers, flown for the first time in late 1942, had a range capable of reaching the Japanese home islands. But there was a problem. Japanese fighters taken off from two, uh, from tiny Iwo Jima were intercepting B-29s as well as attacking the Marinara airfields. So the U.S. determines now that uh, Iwo Jima Island must be captured in order for consistent bombing runs to be successful. How many fucking islands, man? So many islands had to be taken, hopping from island to island to island, taking ports, taking landing strips over and over, taking bases. Man, so many lives sacrificed to take every single island. U.S. Marines invade Iwo Jima on February 19th, 1945, after months of naval and aerial bombardment. The Japanese defenders of the island were dug into deep bunkers hidden within volcanic rocks. Approximately 70,000 U.S. Marines and 18,000 Japanese soldiers took part in the battle. In 36 days of fighting, nearly 7,000 U.S. Marines are killed, 20,000 more wounded. Marines captured 216 Japanese soldiers, the rest killed in action. Island finally declared secured on March 26, 1945, one of the bloodiest battles in Marine Corps history. The now iconic flag raising atop Mount Suribachi took place on February 23, 1945, five days after the battle began. Associated Press photographer Joe Rosenthal took the famous photograph of five Marines and one Navy corpsman raising the flag. The flag raisers were Corporal Harlan Block, Navy pharmacist mate John Bradley, Corporal Rene Gagnan, Private First Class Franklin Sousley, Sergeant Michael Strank, and Corporal Ira, Ira Hayes. Three of these men, Strank, Sousley, and Block, would be killed before the Battle of Iwo Jima was over. Photograph was quickly wired around the world, reproduced in newspapers across the U.S. The image was used as a model for the Marine Memorial at Arlington National Cemetery. 27 Medals of Honor, the U.S.'s highest military award for bravery, 
would be awarded for action on Iwo Jima, more than in any other battle in U.S. history. After the battle, Iwo Jima would serve as an important emergency landing site for more than 2,200 B-29 bombers and would save the lives of an estimated 24,000 U.S. airmen. Now the Allies can finally strike, strike at the heart of the Japanese Empire, Tokyo. On the night of March 9, 1945, two months before the Nazis surrender in Europe, U.S. warplanes launch a new bombing offensive against Japan, dropping 2,000 tons of incendiary bombs on Tokyo over the course of the next 48 hours. Almost 16 square miles in and around the Japanese capital are fucking incinerated. According to one account, between 80,000 and 130,000 Japanese civilians are killed in the worst single firestorm in recorded history. The cluster bombing of the downtown Tokyo suburb of Shitamachi had been approved only a few hours earlier. Shitamachi was composed of roughly 750,000 people living in cramped quarters in wooden frame buildings. Setting ablaze this paper city was a kind of experiment in the effects of firebombing. It would also destroy the light industries called shadow factories that produced prefabricated war materials destined for Japanese aircraft factories. At 5.34 p.m. local time, over 300 Super Fortress B-29 bombers took off from Saipan and Tinian with over 250 reaching their targets shortly after midnight on March 10th. Of the 334 aircraft that took off from three islands, 279 were going to make it all the way. The remainder aborted for technical reasons. The weather in and around Tokyo painted a confusing picture. Because the bombers planned to burn down the Japanese capital, the leaders had waited for a night when the air was dry and there was wind in the target area. The wind uh, was there, but there was also snow in places, flurries, it was kind of all over the place. But the wind would be enough to spread the fire. Uh, it was indeed dry and windy at the capital. The bomb's giant bonfire was fanned by 30-knot winds that helped raise Shitamachi and spread the flames throughout Tokyo. Masses of panicked and terrified Japanese civilians scrambled to escape this, this inferno, most unsuccessfully. In Tokyo, shelter construction, especially in the area near the bay, was complicated because they could not dig more than a few feet without encountering groundwater. Many people simply stayed where they were when the bombers approached and were exploded or fucking burned alive or suffocated when the fire sucked all the oxygen out of their lungs. The human carnage was so great that the stench of burning flesh wafted up and sickened the bomber pilots, forcing them to grab oxygen masks to keep from vomiting. This is fucking horrific. The raid lasted slightly longer than three hours. In the Black Sumida River, countless bodies were floating, clothed bodies, naked bodies, all black as charcoal. It was unreal, recorded one doctor at the scene. Kiyoko Kawasaki, a 36-year-old mother, ran into the street with two buckets on her head for protection, jogging into a sea of fire and seeing burning bodies floating into the Sumida River. Uh, she said the prostitutes who hung out by the riverbank jumped into a nearby pond, but the pond was boiling, so they all died. They were fucking boiled alive. By 3.30 a.m. local time, March 10th, 1945, the firebomb mission was wrapping up. Stacked blackened corpses were being hauled away on trucks. Tokyo resident Fusako Sasaki said she saw places on the pavement where people had been roasted to death. Weeks later, in an army publication, Staff Sergeant Bob Spear wrote, The great city of Tokyo, third largest in the world, is dead. The heart, guts, core, whatever you want to call everything that makes a modern metropolis a living, functioning organism— is a waste of white ash, endless fields of ashes, blowing in the wind. Not even the shells of walls stand in large areas of the Japanese capital. The streets are desolate. The people are dead or departed. The city lies broken and prostrate and destroyed. By the time the guns went silent, B-29s had dropped 104,000 tons of bombs on Japan, reducing to rubble 169 square miles in 66 cities. Bombing missions in Japan would leave homeless 9.2 million civilians, including 3.1 million in just Tokyo. 
the atomic bombings of Hiroshima, Nagasaki, when combined, inflicted less overall damage than the great Tokyo firebomb raid. And bombing raids of Tokyo would continue through the beginning of April into August of 1945. But now let's pivot our focus a little bit. Now the Allies are able to try and take Okinawa, one of the last and bloodiest battles of the Pacific War. April 1st, 1945, after suffering the loss of 116 planes and damage to three aircraft carriers, 50,000 U.S. combat troops under the command of Lieutenant General Simon B. Buckner Jr. land on the southwest corner of the Japanese island of Okinawa, 350 miles south of Kyushu, the southern main island of Japan, as part of Operation Iceberg. From Okinawa, U.S. forces could greatly increase airstrikes against Japan and blockade important logistical routes, denying the home islands of vital commodities. The Americans quickly seized two airfields and advanced inland. They battled nearly 120,000 Japanese army, militia, and labor troops. The Japanese surprised the American forces with a change in strategy, drawing them into the mainland rather than confronting them at the water's edge. While Americans landed without loss of men, they would suffer more than 50,000 casualties, including more than 12,000 deaths, as the Japanese staged a desperate defense of the island, a defense that included wave after wave of kamikaze air attacks. Eventually, these suicide raids proved counterproductive as the Japanese finally ran out of fucking planes. Despite their numerical inferiority, the Japanese were excellent defensive fighters. Each yard gained by the Americans was paid for in blood against a dug-in enemy. While the terrain in Japanese created challenging obstacles to victory, the heat and unceasing torrential rain for much of the month of May further hampered U.S. operations. The 10th Army advanced only four miles in the first seven weeks of battle. With the rain finally slackening and facing a much weakened force toward the end of May, the final 10 miles to the southern tip of the island required only four weeks of effort. Fighting offshore was similarly vicious. In terrifying suicide attacks, Japanese aircraft continually harassed the fleet, arrayed to support the Pacific Theater's largest amphibious assault. During the campaign, 34 ships are lost, 26 sunk by suicide attacks. A back-and-forth artillery duel between the Americans and the Japanese rocked Okin Okin uh, Okinawa day and night. The 10th Army fired 1.1 million, 150... Let me back up. The 10th Army fired 1.1 million, 105 millimeter howitzer rounds during the battle in the process creating some of the largest artillery barrages of the entire war. Uh, I am really surprised at the amount of ammunition the enemy has, a Japanese soldier confided to his diary in late April. When friendly forces fire one round, at least 10 rounds are guaranteed to come back. My morale further weakens, and it was already low before the Americans' arrival. It has been nearly eight weeks since I raped anyone. I may have added those last couple sentences. Uh, Operation Iceberg used up to twice the amount of material needed in the Marineras and three times that of the Battle of Iwo Jima. In the frenetic fighting, U.S. troops dropped some 521,000 projectiles down 60 millimeter uh, mortar, mortar tubes, expended 9 million rifle bullets, burned through 16 million 30 caliber machine gun rounds, tossed 367,000 hand grenades, and fired 25,600 rifle grenades. Damn, the U.S. Navy's awesome guns added to the stunning violence of American firepower as some 600,000 rounds slammed into the Okinawa terrain in support of ground operations. So much firing. By the time Okinawa was secure, uh, secured by American forces, June 22nd, 1945, the U.S. had sustained over 49,000 casualties, including more than 12,500 men killed or missing. When President Truman met with the U.S. military leadership in early June to discuss an invasion of the Japanese home islands, Iceberg's terrible price led him to want to avoid another Okinawa. A 58-year-old Lieutenant General Buckner, son of a Civil War general, was killed by enemy artillery fire just three days before the Japanese surrendered there. Japanese General Yushijima uh, committed ritual suicide upon defeat of his forces there. 
Dude stuffed a ceremonial saber into his stomach and then had a comrade cut his fucking head off with a sword. Samurai style. Very intense way to go out. This is the only battle of the Pacific that cost the lives of both commanding officers. Okinawans caught in the fighting suffered greatly. An estimate as high as 150,000 civilians killed. Caught in the crossfire of what was called a typhoon of steel. Waves of refugees became intermingled with the Japanese army as it stumbled toward a final stand on the southern coast. Others died by their own hands after Japanese propaganda convinced them the suicide was preferable to the horrors of supposed American depravity. The number is not known, but thousands of suicides, possibly tens of thousands, occurred. Japanese women taught that Americans were fiends, worse than devils, that if they were caught, they would be raped, the men would be killed, that suicide was preferable. In a doc I watched, uh, some cameramen recorded women just tossing themselves off of the cliff rather than be captured on Okinawa. So many parents killed their children, threw their fucking kids off cliffs and jumped themselves uh, some, or, or, or you know, stabbed themselves, shot themselves, whatever. Some 80,000 women, children, and older men emerged from caves at the southern tip of Okinawa where they had sought shelter during the final weeks of the battle. 80,000 hiding out. Between one-third and one-half were wounded. On July 14th, 1945, the U.S. Navy now bombards Honshu and Hokkaido. During the last weeks of World War II, warships from the U.S. Navy, the Royal Navy, and the Royal New Zealand Navy would try and take out as many industrial and military facilities as they could with battleships and cruisers. Japan is just being fucking obliterated. A major goal of the attacks is to provoke the Japanese military into committing some of its reserve force of aircraft into battle. However, the Japanese do not attempt to attack the Allied bombardment forces and none of the involved warships suffer any damage. But the Allied naval bombardments do disrupt industrial production in the cities targeted and convince many Japanese civilians that the war is lost. But it won't convince the Japanese government or their puppet emperor, Hirohito. No Japanese military unit surrenders during the entire course of the war. In fact, between midnight and in fact, between mid-April of 1945, when President Harry S. Truman took office following FDR's death via uh, auto-erotic asphyxiation at the age of 63, and mid-July, Japanese forces inflicted Allied casualties totaling nearly half of those suffered in the first three full years of the war in the Pacific, proving that Japan had become more deadly when faced with defeat. Without an unconditional surrender, the war couldn't be over. Italy and Germany had been defeated. It was essentially the world against Japan now, and they refused to stop fighting. Also, FDR died via cerebral hemorrhage while sitting for a portrait, not of auto-erotic asphyxiation. He's probably just sitting there thinking about stamps and shit. Late July, Japan's militarist government rejects the Allied demand for surrender put forth in the Potsdam Declaration, which threatened the Japanese with prompt and utter destruction if they refuse. And they weren't kidding. General Douglas MacArthur and other top military commanders favored continuing the conventional bombing of Japan already in effect and following up with a massive invasion codenamed Operation Downfall. Sounds like a sweet codename, but actually pretty sad. Uh, they advised Truman that such an invasion would result in the U.S. casualties and U.S. casualties of uh, north of a million men. In order to avoid such a high casualty rate, Truman decides over the moral reservations of Secretary of War Henry Stimson, General Dwight Eisenhower, and a number of Manhattan Project scientists to use the atomic bomb in the hopes of bringing the war to a quick end. He chooses to target civilians in hopes of destroying what will, you know, uh, in, in destroying what will to fight the general population has left. Obviously still a controversial decision. Truman may have been motivated to make the decision because two decades earlier, Truman had taken his family on a kind of working vacation to Tokyo. Uh, he and his wife, Bess, their daughter, Margaret, on this vacation were raped over three dozen times. It began at the airport. Japanese soldiers were waiting at the gate for him. Raped the fuck out of the Trumans right when they got off the plane. Then after that, when they make it to their baggage, 
Some Japanese guy pops out from behind a Jamba Juice kiosk. Fucking rapes him again, whole family. Then they get raped a baggage claim. And then again, while they're waiting in line for a taxi. The concierge at their hotel rapes just Mr. Truman twice when he tries to check in. That night at dinner, the host and manager and waiter and two of the cooks rape him. They like to take photos while, while on vacation. And most of their photos from this vacation ended up really blurry and out of focus because while they were trying to take him, they were either being raped or trying to defend themselves from being raped. It's fucking unreal how horny Japanese are. <laughs> so stupid. It's so stupid. Uh, you know, it's just unreal how horny Japanese guys used to be. And Truman was still pretty butthurt over the whole ordeal when he signed off on the bombings, literally, you know? Uh, because of all that, he ended up with a Ronnie Joe kind of fragile dandelion puff of a butthole. <laughs> Sorry, I just, just trying to lighten it up a little bit. My own strange way. Okay. I'm done with that now. August 6, 1945. During World War II, an American B-29 bomber drops the world's first deployed atomic bomb over the Japanese city of Hiroshima. The plane dropped the bomb known as Little Boy by parachute at 8.15 in the morning and it exploded 2,000 feet above Hiroshima in a blast equal to 12 to 15,000 tons of TNT. And it destroyed five square miles of the city. The explosion immediately killed an estimated 80,000 people. Tens of thousands more would die later due to radiation exposure. But still, Japan does not surrender. Three days later, a second B-29 drops another uh, atomic bomb on Nagasaki. Kills an estimated 40,000 people immediately. Over the next two to four months, the effects of the atomic bombings kill between 90,000 and 146,000 people in Hiroshima and 40 to 80,000 people in Nagasaki. Roughly half occurring on the first days of the bombings. Most of them civilians, right? My God. And then just under a week later, August 15th, Japan finally surrendered. Emperor Hirohito right? At the urging and finally of his military staff announces his country's unconditional surrender in World War II in a radio address uh, citing the devastating power of a new and most cruel bomb. Japan just uh, had no match for it. No way to defend the obliteration of future cities. It was either either surrender or basically have the entire nation possibly be laid to waste. The news spread quickly and victory in Japan or VJ Day celebrations broke out across the U.S. and other allied nations. Finally, World War II was truly over. In Europe, in Africa, the Atlantic, in the Pacific, Asia, everywhere. The formal surrender agreement signed on September 2nd aboard the U.S. battleship Missouri, anchored in Tokyo Bay. In 1947, Japan implements a new constitution with a new parliamentary system. Japan renounces war, pledges not to maintain land, sea, or air forces for that purpose. Also pledge to work on understanding, it's not okay, to constantly rape everyone. Sorry, they didn't say that last part. now, Now I really think I'm done with that. Let's get out of this timeline. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. Woo-wee! Man, World War II. Holy shit, so much info. And I gotta tell you, after the heavy and, uh, you know, mostly heavy and stat-heavy missing and murdered indigenous women topic, and then these two fucking bad boy stat monsters back-to-back... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pump the stat breaks for a bit. We're going to get a little weirder for a few weeks. Uh, but so glad we covered these topics. With our coverage of the war in the Pacific, we conclude our two-part series on arguably the biggest event of the 20th century. Certainly one that shaped nearly every country on the planet and touched literally hundreds of millions of lives, billions of lives, really. World War II was so unbelievably massive. More than 50 nations in the world were fighting with more than 100 million total soldiers deployed. Conservatively, over 60 million people died. Many estimates think around 85 million people died, including anywhere from 38 to 55 million civilians. If this war hadn't been fought the way it was, it's likely that many of us would not be here today. Isn't that a strange thought? I wouldn't be around. 
After returning from overseas, where he served as an Army Air Corps mechanic during World War II, my father's father married my grandma, Carol Sloan, on February 15th, 1946. Had my grandpa, Bill Cummins, not served in World War II, he wouldn't have ended up in Southern California, would not have met my grandma, Carol. My dad would have been born, and neither would have I, uh, you know, and I wouldn't have been born either. I mean, in this particular case, that probably would have been for the best. You know, my dad wouldn't have been able to go on to become the most prolific, still uncaught serial killer in world history. And he would have never formed, you know, Bear Evil Incorporated. Uh, but seriously, many of our parents or grandparents would not have met or married when they did. Our world would have looked drastically different today. Uh, did not expect to go so heavy on rape accounts uh, heading into this week. But once I started poking around, holy shit. Took some World War II classes in college. None of that was taught. Uh, neither was the cannibalism stuff, right? The wanton torture. I do think it's important not to shy away from that stuff, right? Uh, man, ha haven't fought myself. Haven't been in or near a war zone. But after digging into all the uncensored accounts of what really happened, not just in World War II, but in other wars, it's just, man, war is so fucking brutal. So full of so many more horrors than soldiers trying to kill each other at a faster rate than being killed. It's full of civilian torture, rape, mass destruction that leaves homes and businesses destroyed, economies in shambles, lives forever altered for the worst. But also, uh, it's what keeps people like Hitler and his goons or people like the members of the every bit as racist as the Nazis, imperial Japanese, nationalistic military regime from, re from remaking the world in their terrible images. Imagine if the Japanese had won. How many millions of women would have been forced to become comfort women? How many millions of innocent people would have been slaughtered? Uh, do some digging. You can find plenty of atrocities committed by Allied forces during World War II that uh, don't include dropping atomic bombs. You know, the fire bombings of places like Tokyo and Dresden uh, counts of widespread rape as well, abuse and murder of POWs, on and on. However, there's no argument for which side waged the more noble fight. Germany and Japan, more than any other nations, started this fight and their aims were not noble. Their ambitions were downright evil. And to do everything to stop them was the only righteous choice to be made. There are still World War II veterans alive right now. Over 150,000 American veterans. They're old, they're in their late 90s or older. And if you know one, I hope you can thank them before they're gone. Because we all owe them a great debt. One we can never repay. If any World War II veterans are listening to this podcast, man, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for literally saving the fucking world from tyranny. Thank you for the greatest collective act of heroism I can think of. For storming the beaches of France, pushing past the dead and dying, for fighting into the forests of Germany, the jungles of countless islands, for sailing through the South Pacific, for soaring through the skies of Europe and Asia and anywhere else you had to search for and hope to destroy dangerous men who wanted to kill not just you, but your way of life, destroy your country, men who literally wanted to kill every member of your family in some cases. Thanks to all the veterans who enlist, not knowing if another war like this is on the horizon. Men and women who fight in combat zones and never get the coverage of a war like this one. Men and women who never know if today is the day they're going to get called away from their loved ones and have to go kill for their country or be killed. Or help the war machine in so many other different ways that keep us from living under a tyrannical leader like Hitler or Mussolini or the random assortment of fucking dickheads pulling Hirohito's strings. You are all heroes. I thank you as much as I can. Let us hope the world never sees another war as brutal as this one. But if it does, let's hope we have people as brave and formidable as the Allied soldiers who were able to stop enemies as powerful and fucking ruthless as the Axis powers all over again. Let's head now to today's takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, World War II was the deadliest military conflict in history in terms of total debt with over 60 million deaths. 
The causes of death were many, not just fighting in combat, but from concentration camps, starvation, bombing campaigns, disease, and more. What a scary time it was to be alive. Number two, the Allies were fighting very different enemies than the Japanese and Germans, but in both cases were fighting nations that have been gearing up for conquest for decades, not only militarily, but culturally, convincing their citizens that outsiders, in Japan's case, Westerners, and in Germany's, Jewish people, were the real cause of their problems. The road to fascism did not happen overnight. Instead, it took decades of an increasing amount of ultra-nationalistic and xenophobic cultural sentiment. Be wary of leaders who want to blame a nation's problems on another group of people. Number three, what the fuck was going on with all the raping? Holy shit. Now, I remember hearing much about that in any class documentary or World War II movie or show I've ever watched. Number four, in many ways, World War II, both in Europe and the Pacific, directly stemmed from World War I and the Treaty of Versailles. While Woodrow Wilson and the victorious allies envisioned a League of Nations in this treaty, where different states would come together to achieve international harmony, uh, that wasn't quite the result. The harsh economic sanctions imposed on Germany in the treaty, combined with the global stock market crash of the following decade, would lead to an atmosphere where the Nazi party convinced Germans that they'd been mistreated by the allies and that a vast conspiracy was at work to keep the German people down. Meanwhile, the rejection of a racial equality clause that Japan proposed further in the treaty, uh, uh, posed in the treaty shot down by Australia, uh, increased Japan's animosity towards Europe and the U.S. and paved the way for their increased militarization and colonial ambitions against the West. And number five, new info. In World War II, British soldiers got a ration of three sheets of toilet paper a day. Americans got 22. Just thought that was weird. What do the Brits know? about butt-wiping techniques that uh, we don't. Or the British people just have very, very dirty buttholes. Something to think about. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Devastation in Asia, World War II, part two of two, has been sucked. Whew. Heavy shit again. I am mentally exhausted. Uh, thank you as always to everyone involved, starting with the Queen of Bad Magic, Lindsay Cummins. Thanks to uh, Tyler C. for directing and producing today. The Suck Ranger. Uh, also helping with production and getting clips, uh, also help, helping with getting clips from various episodes for socials and so much more. Thanks also to Bitelixer for upkeep on the Time Suck app, the Art Warlock, o- Logan Keith, for creating the merch at badmagicmerch.com, helping run our socials along with our Suck Ranger and a team managed by social media strategist, Ryan Handelsman. If only I could get my back catalog of stand-up released uh, by Warner Brothers and other labels, it would make it easier. Uh, thanks to producer Sophie Evans for the initial research again this week. So good again. Uh, and the Cult of the Curious 2 private Facebook group does remain in purgatory. Cult of the Curious, three out of five stars, now active. We're going to change the name here soon. Haven't decided on it yet. Uh, thanks to Bodhi Sunyata for starting it and sharing the admin keys with Logan. And thanks also to the following Facebook admins and mods who've been keeping our various Facebook groups alive for a while now. Kathleen Smith, Adam Gustafson, uh, Sarah Peterson, Elizabeth Hager, or Hagar, Danny Ryan, Jeffrey Bistran, James Weber, Julie and Christine, uh, Mylin, Wolski, Mendoza, Bodie, uh, uh, again here, uh, making sure I thank you in this list, Michael Graham, Deja Arnold, Minnie McIntyre, PJ Suniga, uh, Brittany Lynn Whitehouse. Apologies if I mispronounced uh, any of your names. I, I hope this group can, uh, you know, help us with our, with our new group going forward, whatever the name ends up being. I haven't had the time to meet with everyone and talk it all out yet. Uh, we could for sure use a lot of help in just keeping an eye on what gets posted so the group doesn't ever start to represent behavior we don't want anything to do with. Want to make sure there's room for spirited discussion, but also no racism, homophobia, et cetera. Uh, and thanks to Jess and Kelly 
over on Discord, keeping everything running smooth. Thanks to everyone running the Time Sucks subreddit and Bad Magic subreddit. Yeah, with the uh, social media groups, I'm hoping once I get to the recording of my special here soon, I'll have a little more time to do some of this housekeeping that I just never seem to have time to week to week here. Uh, next week on Time Suck, we're going to get fucking weird. Let's take things in a very different direction. Let's talk about mice and utopia, maybe not being so utopian, and odd science experiments. This is, this is fascinatingly odd to me. In the 1950s, right around the time that the MK Ultra experiments and former Suck subject John T. Lilly's attempt to communicate with dolphins kicked up, a very different scientist was wondering about the effects of overpopulation. As the common thought went at the time, the world may have been reaching overpopulation fast, and it was possible that the Earth's resources wouldn't be able to sustain us. But even if they could, what would the effects of overpopulation be? How would society respond? What John B. Calhoun found was not very promising. In a series of experiments with mice and rats called the Mouse Utopia Experiments, John B. Calhoun provided the fuzzy friends with everything they could possibly need. Enough food, water, nesting material, and space to comfortably house a population of thousands. Though the experiments would start with just a few individuals. He said he expected the population to quickly fill up to fit all the available resources. Free from predators and other worries, a mouse could theoretically live to an extraordinarily old age there without a single worry. But that wasn't what happened. Instead, within a matter of months, the mice started to exhibit very strange behavior. Rodents have social hierarchies, with dominant alpha males controlling harems of females. Alphas establish dominance by fighting, wrestling and biting any challengers. Normally, a mouse that loses the fight will scurry off to some distant nook to start over somewhere else. But in Mouse Utopia, the losing mice couldn't escape. Calhoun called them dropouts, and because so few juveniles died, huge hordes of dropouts would gather in the center of the pen. They were full of cuts and ugly scars, and every so often, huge brawls would break out. Vicious free-for-alls of biting and clawing that served no obvious purpose, just senseless violence. Meanwhile, female mice stopped nurturing their young. Some mice simply dropped out of the colony, not trying to reproduce or do anything other than keep themselves basically alive. Eventually, other deviant behavior emerged. Mice who had been raised improperly or kicked out of the nest early uh, often failed to develop healthy social bonds, therefore struggled in adulthood with social interactions. John B. Calhoun called the societal degradation a behavioral sink, and he believed it could accurately predict what would happen to human beings in overcrowded cities. But was he right? The mice utopia ended half a century ago, but it continues to fascinate people today, especially as a gloomy metaphor for human society. Calhoun actively encouraged such speculation, once writing, I shall largely speak of mice, but my thoughts are on man. The mouse utopia experiments would go on to influence everything from architecture to literature to journalism but very few agree on how seriously we should take these predictions about human society and its decline. As the saying goes, if you give a mouse a cookie, he'll start murdering and cannibalizing his neighbors or something. All that next week on Time Suck. Right now, let's head over to this week's Time Sucker Updates. Updates. Get your Time Sucker Updates. First, some goofiness. One of my stupid jokes from last week landed with at least one listener, and that makes me so happy. Silly sucker, Nicole uh, Oms, O-O-M-S. Nicole Oms writes, Good afternoon, Suck Master Supreme. I'm ready to admit that I've, got, uh, that I've been got. I never thought it would happen to me, but I fell for the Lamar census stat for the, <laughs> for the World War II Part 1 episode, and it's lucky I did. As a full-time mom of a two-year-old and a two-month-old, wow, the days get long. I always look forward to the occasions when the midday naps align and I can get a bit of peace and quiet to read, watch TV, or complete household tasks independently. Uh, Today, everything was falling into place beautifully. Then, just as I got both the toddler and the baby to sleep, our dog starts barking out of the blue, waking them both. As I headed back to the nursery, I put a headphone in to drown out the chorus of cries. 
while listening to Time Suck and tending to two babies, I seriously contemplated sacrificing my dog to Nimrod. When all of a sudden you cited the, uh, cited the Lamar census statistic. First, I was laughing because I thought it was true. Then I was laughing even harder knowing I'd fallen for your bullshit. You snapped me out of my frustration, made me feel so much better. Just wanted to say, I appreciate your dedication to content creation. It's such a comfort to have you in my ear, making me laugh during stressful times. And a quick shout out to my hardworking time sucker husband, Nathan. Nicole. I love it, Nicole. Uh, Still makes me laugh thinking about uh, how ridiculous it would be to see that on an official census document. Just numbers, 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 and then a name. Any name. Just so stupid. Uh, Thank you, Nathan, for listening. And you got a tough job. Two little ones. Good on you for having a sense of humor still. I hope they supply you with as much uh, joy in moments as they do frustration and sleep deprivation in others. And I I bet you are a fantastic mother. And now Marvelous Meat Sack, Mia Moran, has a cool-ass World War II update for us. Uh, Mia writes, I was just listening to the World War II suck, part one, and you were talking about the German Panzer tank and its speed and how it changed the battlefield. It reminded me of a movie I watched years back about about Tucker, uh, or excuse me, about the Tucker torpedo. In that movie, they also touched base on an armored car that Preston Tucker created during the World War II timeframe. Though this vehicle never went into production, it could have easily changed how America fought that war. This car was capable of going 114 miles an hour, had a 37-millimeter anti-aircraft gun capable of 120 rounds per minute on it. The gun was mounted on a turret and because of its speed was able to chase aircraft to shoot them down. Imagine how intimidating this vehicle would have been had it made it to production against the Axis powers. Thanks for all the hours of great entertainment and knowledge. Just a loyal sucker in this giant globe of meat sacks. Hope all is well, Mia. P.S. Just wanted to also throw in Preston Tucker's name into the suckverse for a possible future suck. The man was considered both a con artist and a visionary. Well, thank you, Mia. I did not know about Preston. Uh, Francis Ford Coppola made a movie about him. Came out in 1988, starred Jeff Bridges. Tucker, the man in his dream. Uh, I looked into that crazy combat car and the military passed on it in part because it went too fucking fast. They had a V12. Uh, yeah, that could have changed the battlefield. Probably would have seen a lot of those uh, bad boys go full Dukes of Hazard, shoot up into the air, but maybe not land as well as Bo and Luke Duke could land their car. Uh, thanks for the extra info. Now for some firsthand info from World War II. Awesome. Uh, Scottish sack, Alistair MacArthur, grandson of one of the greats, writes, Dan, I'm sure you will receive lots and lots of messages about the Second World War suck and family members who fought. I would like to share some of the stories that my grandfather shared with me about his experiences. My paternal grandfather, uh, John Ian MacArthur, was 15 at the beginning of the war. In 1939, he was called up on his 18th birthday. Being born and raised in the shipbuilding capital of the world, Glasgow, Scotland, uh, and watching the huge warships stream steam up and down the River Clyde his entire life, the Royal Navy was the only choice for him. His war experience culminated in an operation known as Operation Infatuate in 1944, which required my grandfather to sail in a converted flat-bottomed landing craft up and down the Dutch coast of Valkuren, basically acting as a diversion from the forces storming the beaches and bridges inland. I remember him telling me his orders were hard a port as they traversed the coastline and then advanced a short distance before hard a starboard as they retraced their path, drawing the enemy fire. He said uh, they came so close that they could see the individual flashes of gun embankments firing on them or gun emplacements. All was well until a shell struck his boat, causing it to sink. During this time, my grandfather received a large piece of metal in his thigh above the knee, which led to his left leg having to be amputated sometime later. The facts of this, he told me, always rather matter-of-factly as just uh, something that happened. 
However, after he died in 2010, I found some papers that he had written about his time in the Navy, which included a much more horrific account of the incident. He wrote about friends of his literally blown to pieces and floating in the water. One sailor he wrote about had his entire lower jaw obliterated. My entire life, I was told that granddad lost his leg in the war. Uh, It was always said that he had lost it. So imagine my surprise when as a child playing in the attic of their house, I opened a large cardboard box and a leg fell out. I yelled, I found it. I found granddad's leg. Throughout his life, his prosthetic was often replaced with a newer model and it was a great satisfaction to him when he discovered that the latest model was made in Germany. He'd say they took my first one, so at least the least they can do is give it back. Uh, just some funny stories that came to mind as I was listening. Thanks for the info and constant quality episodes. Oh, that's nice. Thanks, Alistair MacArthur. Well, Alistair, thank you. What a brave bastard your granddad was. And what a fantastic uh, Scottish name you have. To be able to go through what he went through and have a sense of humor about it, be a great granddad, beyond impressive. Right? You had a top shelf grandfather. May he rest in peace. May he walk somewhere with two strong legs behind him. And now, last one, just an all around good message and a call to action from a super sucker named Kevin Daniels. This man with two first names writes Greeting, Suckmaster. I've been debating reaching out for a long time, but I think it's time. I've been a loyal listener since the beginning because you and your first podcast, you were the first podcast I tried since I loved your comedy. I'll try to keep it short, but I make no apologies, sir. I've been teaching high school for 17 years and my wife, a former teacher, has seen the toll it has taken on me. In this time, she has co-authored a book and is currently trying to promote mental health for educators everywhere. She created a group on Facebook called the Aligned Teacher Community. She's really trying to do everything she can to help good, caring teachers stay in the profession as we all need the help we, uh, and we need all the help we can get. She doesn't know I'm doing this, but this beautiful meat sack has stood by my side for 22 years and she's an amazing mother to our three boys. If you don't read this on the podcast, it's okay. It just means you hate teachers. Gosh dang. Thanks for all the content to listen to on my way to school with Time Sucks, Scared to Death, and all the Bad Magic Productions. Uh, well, thank you. That's that's very nice of you, uh, Kevin. Yeah, you and your wife uh, doing some some really good stuff. Uh, thanks for the message, and thanks for what you, you continue to do. It, it sucks what teachers go through. Low pay, parents that just complain and never compliment, kids that don't respect how important what you do is. Uh, know that some of us value the fuck out of you. You shape the future of society. You mold young minds for better or for worse. How incredibly important. Hail Nimrod, hail teachers, hail veterans. And I hope some folks in need check out the Aligned Teacher Community Facebook group that your wife started. Thanks everybody for the messages. Thanks time suckers. I needed that. We all did. Another Bad Magic Productions podcast in the bank. Uh, Please don't rape anybody this week. Uh... You know, especially uh, don't rape like an entire city. It's too much. It's fucking way too much. Just go beat off or something. And then sit down, shut the fuck up, and keep on sucking. Oh, come in. Mr. President, Mr. President. Yeah, yeah. Pearl Harbor has been bombed. Pearl Harbor has been bombed. That's terrible. But hey, no, real quick though. Look at this. This is a Charlie Chaplin stamp. This from that's 1923 Charlie Chaplin stamp. Uh, this this over here stamp. This is a, a North Dakota stamp. North Dakota stamp. It's very rare. Very rare. Yeah, no Pearl Harbor. That's terrible. We got. I have one more sheet. I just have to lick these guys. Oh, I, I just won't forgive myself if if I don't do this right now because you can lose them. That's the thing about stamps. If you don't get them in their spots, they just float away. It's happened to me so many times. 
And uh, we'll get right to that. We'll get right to the bombing and stuff. Oh, naughty, naughty Japanese. I I have some Japanese stamps as well, actually. Here's a here's a, a stamp. This is a, a guy raping a bunch of people. Uh, it's traditional Japanese stamp. What? <laughs> <laughs> 